Hello again, friends. And you are my friends. And welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast. The only podcast that matters. And this is another very special edition. Our look at the 2019 class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. We're going to discuss ballots. We're going to discuss who got in, who didn't get in, ways to improve the Hall of Fame, and so much more. We have a series of roundtable discussions that you're going to be checking out. This is part one. Part two will be up. If you're listening as the show debuts, part two will be up tomorrow night. But if you're listening at any other point after the show debuted, go download part two after you're done listening to this. But a few notes here before we get going. One, I should mention the nature of these roundtable discussions doesn't always lend itself to perfect audio quality. I apologize if any of the audio on this episode is substandard. We did our very best. Lightning Lou Kippelman, our superstar producer here at Arcadian Vanguard, actually jumped in and helped me out with a little bit of it just to clean it up as much as possible. But I don't think anything takes away from these fantastic wrestling discussions. I really hope you enjoy them. Second thing is, as we get going with this, I'm going to reveal my ballot for this year's Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. For the category of historical performers, I voted for Wild Bull Curry, Sputnik Monroe, Enrique Torres, and Bearcat Wright. For the modern performers in the U.S. and Canada, I voted for the Junkyard Dog, Sergeant Slaughter, and Bill Goldberg. For Wrestling in Japan, I voted for Akira Taui and Yoshiaki Fujiwara. For Wrestling in Mexico, I abstained, as I did last year as well, and that'll certainly be explained as you listen to this show. For the wrestling in Europe, Australia, the Pacific Islands, the Caribbean, and Africa, I voted for Big Daddy. And for the non-wrestlers category, I voted for Ted Turner, Morris Siegel, and Bob Cottle. And I also recommended that Dave Meltzer look into putting Roy Welch either on the ballot or, more specifically, including him in the Hall of Fame as a historical inductee. And we'll get to that a little bit as we get going with the show. But I should also make mention of who did get into the Hall of Fame this year. This year, elected into the Hall of Fame were Los Misioneros de la Muerte, otherwise known as the Death Missionaries, Ultimo Guerrero, Ghetto, Viano Three, Dr. Wagner Jr., Jim Crockett Sr., and Bearcat Wright, with Paul Pons of France, being inducted as an overlooked historical figure. Again, this is a topic that will be repeated many times here in Part 1 and Part 2 of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame special that we are doing. So let's kick it right off. Let's go to a discussion I had, the first roundtable, Jim Cornette and Scott Teal talking the Hall of Fame. We are talking the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame class of 2019 today with two of wrestling's finest historians, two guys who actually have very similar backgrounds in the same territory, men who have published books, photographers, they've put out programs, they've done it all. I want to introduce the man behind Crowbar Press, who's typing away right now, it seems, Scott Teal, and of course, Mr. Jim Cornette. Guys, thank you for being on the line today. Man, I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, Brian, by the way, I can tell you're flustered from that introduction because <laughs> you didn't read it anything like how I wrote it. And you, you've, 
But also, <laughs> you you made one mistake. Scott and I are not historians. At our age, we're prehistorians. <laughs> yes. I when I was in school, they didn't have history, so I had to learn this stuff after the fact. <laughs> Well, we're going to be talking a little bit about wrestling history today. We're going to talk a little bit about the 2019 class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame. Both of you are voters, and I'm just curious. I'm going to read off the names. Yeah, of the this may, may have been my last year. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. Well, let me read off the names of the people <laughs> who got in and get your feelings and find out if any of the people who got in are people who were on your ballots. The people who got in this year were the Death Missionaries, Ultimo Guerrero, Gato, Viano Three. Dr. Wagner Jr., Jim Crockett Sr., and Bearcat Wright. Were any of those names on your ballot, Scott? Yes, uh, Crockett. I, now that I think about it, yeah, Crockett. I voted for Crockett, uh, but I had a hard time deciding between him and Mara Siegel. You know, well, we'll talk about that in a second. Jim, were any of these names on your ballot? Yeah, well, I, actually, we were laughing right before we went on the air, if you can call this air. Uh, ever since we've been on the air, people decided to quit breathing it. But um, we were talking, and I said, well, it's it, it going to be easy to talk about this. None of my shit, you know, got in. Um, but actually, I believe I did. Yes, Jim Crockett Sr. Who was the list? Who were the candidates? Because apparently Scott and I, we will bond on this. This is the only thing we have actually pertinent to talk about on the Hall of Fame issue. Who were the non-wrestling candidates? Because you can vote for... Any number of them, it doesn't count against the total or whatever the, the rule is. And, and I can tell you who I voted for there. Do you have that information? Ever... The non-wrestling candidates this year were Lord James Bleers, Dave Brown, Bob Cottle, Jim Crockett Jr. and Jim Crockett Sr., Gato, Jim Johnston, Larry Matisik, Stephanie McMahon, James Melby, Don Owen, Mara Siegel, George Scott, Naoki Sugabayashi. All right. Well, oh, yeah. I, I, he was on my list. Now go ahead. Ted Turner, Stanley Weston, and the Grand Wizard. Okay. Basically, I think I've, I'm pretty sure I voted for a Crockett, and I'm pretty sure it would have been senior before junior because senior never owed me any money. <laughs> <laughs> Before we even talk about the Crockett's, let's go to Mara Siegel, because that's actually one that I petitioned Dave to get on the ballot. And I thought, it's not that I even think Mara Siegel should be on the ballot. The people I petitioned Dave for previously were Wild Bull Curry, now Mara Siegel. This year, I said that Roy Welch should be on the ballot. But in actuality, I think these are three candidates that should have been inducted with the inaugural class, where Dave yeah. just anointed people who were clear-cut Hall of Famers into the Hall of Fame. Do you see it the same way that these three historical figures are no-brainers? Uh, Jim, I'll go to you first. Well, I don't know if Morris Siegel is a no-brainer. Wild Bull Curry is a no-brainer. How can you not have Wild Bull Curry in a pro wrestling hall of fame, whether for longevity, what did he wrestle 45 fucking years, uh, whether for drawing power, he was a huge drawing card in at least three different decades, uh, the classic name, the classic face, the fact that he was such a, a worker in his within his own gimmick um, caused riots, tore the house down. Just legendary character. I, you know, it just that's one of those ones that stands out like the screen door on a submarine. So yeah, Wild Bull Curry, but Morris Siegel may not be a no brainer. He's very important historically. But with, now that you've mentioned Roy Welch, to be quite honest, 
if you're going for pioneer promoters and Roy Welch isn't in, Morris Siegel shouldn't be in either because Roy Welch invented and controlled a genre of wrestling in a massive geographical area for 40 years. And, and Morris Siegel, you know, was the great promoter of Houston, but it size wise, impact wise, Roy Welch at one point and the territory under him booked and employed more different wrestlers, maybe at not a high rate apiece, uh, but more different talent and ran more towns than any other territory in the country. Not only that, but he, he really pushed the, the smaller guys where most territories were going with the big guys. And, the, and it's flat. I mean, Nashville was on its tail end when uh, Nick Goulas came in. I mean, you know, it was Nick, but Roy was there behind him. But when Nick came into Nashville, man, the territory took off because they were pushing the junior heavyweight or the smaller guys. Uh, the guy that was promoting there, the promoting the heavyweights, man, he he was losing his shirt. Well, yeah, and that's why uh, Scott makes a good point. It, the Tennessee territory because of the fact that Roy Welch was behind the scenes behind much of it, Nashville and Chattanooga and, you know, in the early days, and then they added Birmingham and then they added Memphis, but he was the link from the thirties to the seventies. And he saw what had worked, especially in Nashville, Pat Malone, the green shadow was five foot seven. And I mean, you know, when I knew him, he was 200 pounds. He's a little doughier than back in the, you know, in the day, a little fleshier. Uh, but those guys drew such massive amounts of money that that's why the Tennessee always used, they used big guys, you know, as, as years went on, but the smaller guys, the action, the personal issues and the, the violence, the heat of the thing is what you know, ran uh, the Tennessee territory and the, you know, surrounding environment. Scott, let me ask you, because I know that you're someone who in your years working for the Goulas Welch office, doing the programs, you actually had a really good positive experience and a good relationship with Nick Goulas. You've never had it. Oh, absolutely. Right. But you're aware that a lot of guys didn't, and there is a stigma about Nick Goulas. Do you think that hurts Roy Welch? Do you think people think Goulas Welch and whatever negative thoughts or connotations are there for Nick Goulas get automatically applied to Roy Welch? No, not at all. I don't, I don't think they put, because you, you talk to anybody, most people say, you know, Roy Welch was great and Nick Goulas was the jerk. And, but you know, in, in all actuality, most of the time Roy Welch was the jerk behind the scenes and he let Nick do all the dirty work. <laughs> but the problem, what the problem is getting Roy Welch in is most of the people that are voting have no clue how much influence Roy Welch had on the business. They don't realize Roy Welch opened up Mississippi. He opened up territories and, uh, towns in Florida. He was, I mean, he ran Tampa for a while. People, I never knew that up until, you know, like 10 years ago, all of a sudden I discovered that. And I think, well, my goodness, I had no clue. But uh, uh, Nick Goulas was even uh, listed as the promoter in Tampa for several years. And uh, I forget what the guy's that, name. That was, that was with, back but, in the forties, wasn't it, uh, Scott? Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, I'd say the mid forties, it was few, several years after he came in and promoted Nashville, probably yeah, I've, 48, I've, 47. I've seen in, in one of your, uh, one of your publications of like a, a new promoter, Nick Goulas runs event in Lake Worth, Florida, you know, and, and that, <laughs> yep. that's the first I had ever known of, 
of Nick going down that far, but you know, he was a guy that had, had hustled. See, that's the thing. And Brian, you know, from listening to Ron Fuller's stories, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but in the thirties and forties, when these booking offices before there were territories, because territories kind of came with television, but in the, the pre TV days, they were booking offices and there were central locations where, a promoter and his booker controlled a group of guys and they were sent out to different towns and every town had a local promoter. It could be different. So while it wasn't a territory per se, where the office was making all the money from these towns, the booking office was making money on talent. Did I kind of say that right, Scott? Yes, absolutely. And 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 that's what Roy Welch was doing. Yeah. It was kind of like, I want to say this in a nice way. It was kind of like a legal version of the mob. Roy Welch and the Welch brothers, they were such, Herb Welch was a bigger star in the ring than Roy, bigger named, you know, a, a, a box office attraction. But Roy and Herb as a team had been in so many places and, and done the first tag team matches. They had the first tag team match in Louisville in 1943. So <clears throat> together, it, Roy was kind of like the strong arm guy and they went and opened up their version of their, this thing of ours, wrestling, in all these different states and areas. And, and you know, that Roy passed that down to, you know, he'd send his son, then buddy Fuller open up, you know, Alabama or Louisiana. And then, you know, that's how the Fullers, it was a family tradition from that point on, they would open up towns and territories and get TV somewhere or uh, open up a little circuit so that they could run shows. And that was, that was their MO, but it all came from Roy and he was, he had a finger in everything south of Indiana except the Carolinas at one point or another in wrestling for 40 years. One guy that doesn't get his due when, when we talk about Roy Welch and Nick Goulas and opening up all these, uh, all these towns and territories is Pat Malone. Pat Malone, I mean, he, uh, I can't remember how long, but he sold out Nashville as the green shadow for like 12, 13 years. And he was never unmasked till the very end. And he used to be Roy's uh, front man for a long time. He'd go, he went down to Florida. He promoted, you mentioned uh, Lake Worth, Jim. He went down and opened uh, Lake Worth and ran the town for, for Roy. Uh, he went all over the place for Roy. Uh, like I said, Pat Malone, uh, he's another that should get his, uh, his due for what he's contributed to the wrestling business. However, who knows the name Pat Malone? You know, you know right. him, I know him, we, you know, <laughs> but how many other people know who he was? Most people think the green shadow, just another mascot, but I'm telling you what, he packed the arenas around here for year after year after year. Well, your book, and, and I, I dare you to do the update from 1960 on, but your Nashville book shows that really the, the four biggest names in Nashville history as singles box office attractions would be Jerry Lawler, Jackie Fargo, Herb Welch, and Pat Malone, the green shadow. And I don't know if because of those, just the sheer length of time and the numbers that they drew, if Pat wouldn't have been above maybe even Lawler. Yeah. But anyway, Brian, what was your question? I I, I don't even (laughs) remember. That was a while ago, but like I said before, I think that's part of the issue that Roy Welch should be in the Hall of Fame, but I don't know if he should be on the ballot. I mean, this year, Paul Pons got into the Hall of Fame because he was a historical oversight. Someone from France who should have been put in 
I really didn't know too much about his history. I think, I think he possibly should have been committed earlier than this. Uh, was he related to the famous dancer Lily Pons? I really don't know. <laughs> but that's my point. I mean, who's going to be voting for Roy Welch? Modern wrestlers? Modern reporters? I think that's a historical oversight. Yeah. Someone who needs to be put in. But I would make the same argument for Mara Siegel. And I would actually do it based on who's already in. If Paul Bosch is in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, and he should be, for, what, 1967 to 1987. Morris Siegel ran Houston for almost 50 years. I just found a program the other day from, I think, 58, that it was about to celebrate his 40th anniversary as yeah. a promoter in Houston, Texas. He had Whisker Savage. He had Wild Bill Curry. He had Danny McShane. He had a lot of big stars. And, of course, he gave Paul Bosch's break after Paul Bosch's injuries forced him out of the ring. I just think, how could you have Paul Bosch in the Hall of Fame and not have Morris Siegel? It seems because Dave, because yeah. Dave knew Paul, <laughs> but no, so he can write from a firsthand perspective when he does the profiles and people. It's a modern era of a lot of people are still around that grew up either watching Houston wrestling or trading for the coveted Mid South tapes, and Paul Bosch was the guy then. But you know that's. Once again, you always voted for Jerry Jarrett because how can you not have Jerry Jarrett in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, for heaven's sake? But if Jerry Jarrett goes in, then really Nick Goulas and Roy Welch would have to because they ran the same territory for twice as long. And, you know, the argument yeah. I've heard against Nick Goulas is, and I know you guys have both heard it, he didn't pay well. He starved guys. Do you think that's a fair complaint or do you think it's an unfair complaint? I think it's unfair and I'll tell you why. Nick was paying fifteen, twenty dollars in the sixties and the early seventies. Uh, you know, he he was paying twenty five, thirty dollars in the in the uh seventy six on up. Jerry was paying fifty, but Jerry never went past, uh, paid a whole lot more than that to a lot of the underneath guys. Uh, in the 70s and 80s or the 80s so you know what's in the 80s 50 dollars wasn't worth much more than 25 dollars was in the 70s so you know it, I, i've heard a lot of stories on you know both sides you know so well, people you know, always route at nick and jim you can address that better than i can you got paid by jerry well but here's the thing it, 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 there's a little bit of truth in everything Nick was notorious for the underneath guys. He didn't give shit whether they stuck around or not because he had a million of them and he had a closet, you know, full of masks where he could have three sets of infernos <laughs> on a given notice. And so he didn't care. The underneath guys could come and go. Bobby Eaton always tells a story about, you know, he loved to use the Mexicans, especially in the 50s and 60s, especially if they didn't have paperwork because who are they going to complain to? You know, yeah. and, and the guy goes up and over. Mr. Nick, I need more money to, you know, for, pay for my family and food. Well, well, boy, what'd you make last week? Well, Mr. Nick, I only made $40. Well, it's not what you make. It's what you save, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> the, but the guys that drew him money that were figured in, whether it be, you know, be the uh, Green Shadows or, or the Herb Welches of the 50s and whether it be the Fargos and Tojo and those guys in the 60s and 70s, he took care of them. I mean, you know, the story was Jackie Fargo in 1972 actually made over $100,000 working for Nick Goulas, which is like $7 million in anybody else's money. Yep. Yep. Um, so, But you had to be figured in, and that's the, that's the way the wrestling business always was. But Nick was notorious for taking it 
to another level because he came from the depression days and he would use the illegal alien under a hood three times on one show and pay him once. And he would run those underneath guys off because he had a steady stream of a million of them. But, you know, he would always promise the top guys he wouldn't take care of. Boy, stick with me, you'd be farting through silk. You know, so that was, so there's, there's truth on both ends. And, and Jerry was quite a bit the same way. He just wasn't quite as, he had a, a softer, uh, more palatable demeanor when he was fucking you than Nick did. Yeah, absolutely. Nick didn't mind telling you. Yeah. And see, that's it. that Roy was always the smart money. Roy was the guy. Roy Welch was the guy. Nick became his front man because he was still a top wrestler back when that really would have looked screwy to have the top guy be the promoter. So Nick was the front guy. He was the hustler. He was the guy that, that, you know, could be the figurehead promoter. And Roy was the, the booker, the wrestling mind, the guy that called the shots. And he, from what I understand, let Nick, you know, do what he wanted when it didn't bother Roy. But what was the quote, Scott, when Memphis and Birmingham, when they both came into the, into the fold, were both on Monday nights and Nick was from Birmingham. So that was his crown jewel. He'd go down there every Monday and be the promoter. Whereas Roy had sent buddy Fuller down. He's the one that got Memphis and he would go to Memphis. And he always said, whatever happened in the rest of the territory, the quote I believe was, I'll never let the Greek handle Memphis. Yep. And that's how Memphis ended up being the place where Nick had the least amount of stroke. And Jerry was able to take it away from him later on. Yes, absolutely. And you go back, going back to the, uh, him using the underneath guys, the Mexicans, the guy, you know, Brian, you said something a little bit ago about Nick was good to me. And yes, he was. He never gave me a problem. I mean, he let me do the program, sell the programs, never asked me for a penny and how many promoters wouldn't take a percentage. But Nick, if he needed you, he would treat you like gold. That's why Jackie Fargo did so well. That's yeah. why so many of the top guys did well. But if he didn't need you, he wouldn't pay you as he'd pay you as little as he possibly could. He knew I didn't I didn't need him. I was in college, you know. I, I mean, he knew I loved the business and I loved what I was doing, but it wasn't like I was going to starve to death or, or had a family to feed. So he treated me well because he because I was doing a good job for him with the programs and the publicity and the photos. So that you know that's why he treated me well. But if 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 I had come in there, you know, if well, if I'd become a wrestler or a manager and decided to do that, which I never had any interest in, but if I had done that, I'll guarantee you I would have starved to death because he would have. That's exactly <laughs> what he would have done to me. Hey, I, I'll tell you. Michael St. John told me a story uh, that I, I don't remember the particulars, and it's not germane. But the uh, over overreaching point of the thing was that Michael's wife had gotten ill, and they had some medical bills or whatever. And he just happened, Nick just happened to hear about it somehow or whether they were discussing and he went in the, the safe in the office and pulled out. He said, how much was it, boy? Pulled out whatever it was and handed it to him. Said, here you go. Don't worry about it. You know, we'll talk about it later. And just because I guess the story goes, Scott, you might know that the last office building that Nick had built only a couple of years before he went out of business there in Nashville. Yep. The story I always heard was that he paid cash for it and not cash like I'll write you a check and you cash it, but he just went in his office safe and pulled out like 180 grand in cash. And I, there, I have never heard that. 
I've heard that story from a couple different people that actually had been in that office. Uh, because wow. that's what, what Brian and I have talked on the program so many times about being a wrestling promoter and having a territory like that in those days was a license to print money, especially yep. the spot shows when <laughs> you had Eddie Marlin coming back from whatever town or Lynn Rossi coming back from whatever town or Pat Malone from whatever town with a briefcase with a, a 44 Magnum and $5,000 in cash inside of it, you know, yep. two or three from two or three different places every night. That's right. Uh, you know, so, but yeah, if you, if Nick, if you were important, that was one thing he learned from <clears throat> all the wrestling promoters. If you were important to, to Nick, you know, you, you get taken care of, but uh, if you weren't and it, then it was dependent on whether he liked you or not, I guess. How much stock do you put in the story that Nick acted the way he did because the wrestlers used to mistreat him? I just don't believe that. I mean, I, I just don't see that. He worked for Chris Jordan, you know, and he, and people say, well, he worked for Chris. And when he went on trips, the guys would put him on the floor. I don't believe that. In a second. Yeah. I think well, Nick was just now, Nick. Go, ahead, go ahead and finish it. The story was, I sound like Lawler now trying to egg something out of Lance Russell. The story was that was always told was that Nick was so, uh, hostile to the boys because when he was the flunky in, in Alabama, you know, poster boy or Chris, whatever yeah. uh, for Chris Jordan, that they would throw him in the back of those big 30s sedans and just then throw garbage on him and piss on him while he was on the floor. All the boys would and right. he ended up owning the territory and getting even. And that's probably once again, it's probably apocryphal in some description and probably is, I'm sure a lot of it happened because, you know, there's a, there's those wrestlers, pushing this fucking little kid around a little kid, you know, 20 year old guy flunky yeah. around the promoter. And then all of a sudden Roy Welch, who's figured in with the Welch brothers and they're all fucking shooters takes the kid under his wing because he's a fast talker and he looks good in a suit and he can be the front man and the worm turns. And all of a sudden Nick is pissed, throwing garbage and pissing on the boys. There may be a little, who knows? It, it was yeah, eight years ago. Yeah. I'll tell you what, guys. I want to move on with a couple other names that got in. Yeah, because and... we don't even know how to pronounce any of the rest of the people got indicted. This, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, names that got in, names that didn't. But before we move on, real quick, do you guys think Nick Goulas is a Hall of Famer? I, I, I do, but but it's like Roy Welch. You know, who's going to vote for him? I, you know, Roy, and even, you know, Mark Siegel. Uh, Mark Siegel was a huge name, but, you know, he got, he's got the guy, I can believe, that got Texas Wrestling started, you know, the TV program. I, I'd have to remember, read up on that. But uh, all the, there's so many guys like them that, that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. When you look back at some of the past guys that have gotten in, there's a lot of guys, oh, the older time guys that should have been in before them, but they'll never get in because the guys that are voting don't, you know, they don't know who they are. We're, you know, we're always back to that same thing. I, I think, you know, Nick, as part of Nick Goulas and Roy Welch, the Goulas Welch Enterprises, yeah, you would be a Hall of Fame name in wrestling. But if you go to the root of the matter, it, it, it's like if, if Nick Goulas and Roy Welch in 1940, something would have been like Jim Crockett and Dusty Rhodes. If you're going to put one of them in, Roy Welch was the guy that was the wrestling guy. And, and Crockett mm -hmm. was the guy only, you know, in, in this case, Crockett was probably, uh, uh, 
the whole Crockett family were owners, whereas, you know, Nick had half, blah, 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 and Dusty didn't have a piece of it. But you know what I'm saying? The, the Booker wrestler guy behind the scenes is sometimes gets my nod over the just the businessman. And you know what? Jim Crockett, who made the Hall of Fame, I mean, everything I've heard is he didn't do a lot of the booking. He was just behind the scenes. He had the money. Yeah. And yet you have Morris Siegel. I'll guarantee Morris Siegel was doing the booking. Well, they actually had the booking office until Morris Siegel died. And Paul Bosch took over right. and thought he was taking over the Houston booking office. And then Fritz von Erich said, oh, no. <laughs> it will now be the Dallas booking office. And you know, that said, led to. He said, oh, no. He said, oh, no. Uh, and that led to <laughs> years of acrimony behind the scenes between Fritz and Paul Bosch, eventually, years later, leading to Houston having nothing to do with Fritz von Erich. But it was the Houston booking office, not the Dallas booking office, that controlled most of Texas wrestling outside of, you know, West Texas. Right. But when you when you look at the, the observer ballot, I mean, the observer results, Jim Crockett got 63% of the vote. And what what did Mar Siegel get? Twenty nine percent. I mean, I just don't see that. Uh, but but just, you know, you know what? That's crazy. There, there, there's never been a Siegel Cup in the NWA. There's never been <laughs> that that. that it, seriously, the '80s round of pay per view. The Crockett name is still uh, fondly remembered because of, it was the last stand of the NWA, as as a lot of people knew it back then. You know, so. Uh, I think it's which just, brings us right brings us right back to what we were talking about a while ago. Yeah, a lot of these guys, Roy Welch, will never get in because nobody knows who they are. Well, let me ask you before we move on with this conversation. Jim Crockett Senior got in. Do you think Jim Crockett Junior is a Hall of Fame? I'll go to you first, Scott, because Jim obviously worked for him and eventually was owed money by him at the end of uh, <laughs> when Turner Broadcasting took over. But do you see Jim Crockett Junior as a Hall of Famer? I, I believe so. I mean, given the fact that he took his, you know, he had his money and he, he thought he, he used it the way he thought it should be and, and built the business. But I, I, I don't know as far as, I don't know. It depends on how you look at it. Again, we're Mars Siegel. What a great mind he had for the business. Like I said, I guarantee he was booking, but Jim Crockett Jr. I don't think he ever booked uh, Jimmy. You probably know more about whether he did or not, but I don't think so. You know, he had senior, even, you know, his senior didn't book that much. He had Becker booking, uh, Johnny Weaver, you know, he had all those guys underneath booking. And so I, I, I don't know. That's a hard question. Jim Crockett Jr. booked for about six weeks when TBS bought the company from in between Dusty and George Scott. And, and boy, there was no call for him to book anymore after those six weeks. Uh, and I think he knew it himself. Um, he, here's the thing with Jim Jr. And I'm not trying to, you know, and I've made the money back since then that he owed me on the mid Atlantic films that TBS tossed out. Um, but Jim Crockett Sr. starts the territory, becomes a legendary figure, runs that thing for almost 40 years, is universally respected amongst the boys, is a gregarious yep. fellow by all accounts. And Jim Jr. was not the choice to run the company. When Jim Sr. passed away, it was John Ringley who was married to Francis Crockett. John Ringley is what the he one. Did. Well, we know what he did, but before he did that, he's the one that brought in George Scott. He's the one that okayed the expansion into a major singles territory using more national names from the comfort zone that they had been in all those years. 
Uh, so indirectly, then he's responsible for Valentine and Wahoo. Then he's also responsible for, you know, letting Mr. Johnson and the twins out in unsolicited uh, 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 bandians, bandyings with uh, other people besides the Crockett family, namely Francis. And so they kicked him out of the family. And then Jim Jr. is now the choice when all this stuff has been set in motion. And he had another thir 12, 13 years where he was the head of the company when it was one of the most successful territory in the country and had the best yeah. talent and the best bookers. So, and then, and then he didn't keep on top of things and was led to believe things that he was going to get the TV revenue and the pay-per-view and a blah, blah, blah. And they ended up in the soup. So I'm not sure he, you know, there needs to be some other promoters in the Hall of Fame first, I think. Well, let's talk about bookers because we're talking about Crockett promotions. George Scott didn't get in. And obviously, Jim, you did not like George Scott and George Scott didn't know who you guys were. Yeah. But <laughs> taking that out of it, do you think as a booker, George Scott should be in? Absolutely. Don, o Don Owen got 59% of the vote. What did George Scott get? 19% and Scott, but Don Owen, I mean, all you hear is about good about him. I've, I've heard a few people didn't, didn't like what he did, but things he did, but Don Owen, I don't believe did a lot of the booking. Uh, Lee, he didn't, have, he didn't do anything as much for the business as George Scott did. George Scott, not only was a great booker, but he was a great wrestler in his day. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, he sh he should be in long, but he is way at the bottom of the list, and I just don't understand that. And right below him on that on the results list on this, and this is going off the track, but is the Von Brauners and Saul Weingroff with 19% yeah. of the vote. Yeah. Go figure. They drew money, 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 money for decades, and I, yet I they're vote, at I the bottom of the, the list. I vote for the Von Brauners and Saul every year because how and the Anderson brothers only because how can you have a yep. wrestling Hall of Fame without the Von Brauners and fucking Saul and the Andersons? But, but back to George Scott, I might put him in the Hall of Fame as a wrestler before a booker, and I'll tell you why because he was a good booker in the the standpoint that he picked the right guys to get started with in the Carolinas. Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel and a few of the other uh, acquisitions that he made. But then, and actually from what I've heard from a lot of the guys, his talent as the booker was picking all this talent and then saying, what do you guys want to do? And Blackjack Mulligan and Flair would go in and pitch something. And then they'd get pitched something pitched from Wahoo McDaniel. And then here would be, you know, some other, the, the NWA champions are coming in and go, well, I could do this deal of the bounty. All George Scott had to do was assimilate all that. He had the best right. and the smartest talent because what did he do? That's, that's what you hear. George Scott booked the Carolinas into the glory period. That was from 1975 into, or maybe 74, right? Until he left in 1982. Where was he mm -hmm. ever successful again? Right. I, I agree with you there. Again. He worked for Vince for a couple of years and actually quit over WrestleMania because he thought it was too fucking showbiz hogwash, right? So you could tell him and Vince were not going to be long-term. But he he went, he booked for Leroy McGurk for a minute. He booked Dallas and brought in Bam Bam Bigelow as, as a Russian. Um, 
and then and then he was done. Everything else was a complete flop. He tried South Atlantic in Charlotte. He was a, the original booker of that. It didn't work. So I, you know, I'm chalking up a lot of George Scott to having the best all-star roster of talent and saying, Hey, what do you guys want to do with each other? Cause that's the way they did it in the Carolinas. Anyway, they yeah. brought in the Kentuckians, got them over. And then they said, well, Hey, we worked his program with Hamilton and Renesto. Let's bring them in. And that's, you know, that's what they would do. The Von Brauners and Saul Weingroff was brought up. And obviously as Scott, you said, they drew money everywhere. And whether it's Tennessee, whether it's Florida, everywhere they went, they were a major attraction. Why do yep. you think why do you think they've obviously if a lot of people don't know them or aren't aware of them or and there isn't a lot of video footage, it's easy to overlook them. But do you think there's a reason why they're overlooked beyond that? And and give their case for being Hall of Famers. Which one? I don't, I don't know. I don't know why they're. I don't know why they're overlooked. I mean, other than the fact we keep going back to the same thing with the people voting today, that, that most of them don't even know anything about the Von Brauners. They don't know, you know, they don't study history. They don't go back and look at, you know, how what the houses were like. Look at old records and look at old matches, and they just don't do that. So I, I think that's the whole. That's the whole problem with this whole system. I really believe that that's there's just the people voting and I'm not putting down the, those people, but they just don't understand, you know, the business back then because they, they, they haven't studied it. They haven't studied the history. Uh, but as far as making a case for it, I mean, it's a no brainer. If you go back and look at those records, uh, Jim can tell you this, the Von Brauners, uh, everywhere they went, they made money. And even I'm even talking about the, later incarnations of the von brauners you know uh the the, the von or the, even the von stroheims they drew good money and not they didn't do anything near what the von brauners did and i think a lot of what the von brauners did so well was because they had saul man i ha hated saul's guts i mean he was a, a i told herbie weingroff on facebook one day he posted something about his dad i said your dad is a rat face sniveling cowardly I forget what it was. And I said all this stuff and I said, it's funny how we, we love that guy now. And, and he thought that was really, he thought that was really funny, but, but that's everybody hated so, Saul Weingroff. I mean, he had this look about him. He didn't even have to say anything or do anything. You just hated him. No, he looked like uh, the classic out of central casting, the classic mobster or shady, grimy, sleazy used car salesman. That fucking Brillo pad hair. Yes. Snidely whiplash. <laughs> that Brillo pad hair all over his body, his big bushy eyebrows, <laughs> the big nose, the surly, you know, frown, the fucking hat and the cane and the, the voice and just disdain. He was just a an unlikable, surly looking human being. And the Von Brauners were these big, bald Nazis. You know, fucking less than 15 years after the war when it started. But the, the two things. Number one, as Scott mentioned, before video, there's no video around. There's, you know, it, it's it's right that era before. But secondly, they never Good worked point. New York. And they never worked New York, so they never got in the mainstream magazines. They were always in Wrestling Review in the 60s instead of the the big publications and later on the after magazines as they became known, they were, they were still a, the Von Brauners were a main event team in the early seventies. And, you know, and, and since the 1950s, they had about a 15 year run and 
you almost never saw them on the major mainstream magazines because they didn't ever work either the AWA or like Chicago, the Midwest, or the Northeast, the WWWF. But they were constantly the top team in Florida or Georgia or the Tennessee, giant Tennessee territory or Texas, you know, and and especially in the, the territories that were weekly towns because they would have so much heat they'd draw every week over and they'd start riots people try to hit the ring on them and <laughs> get bopped by Saul's cane with the fucking lead in it and everything um but that's why people not only have not seen them because it's before video but also they didn't they don't have a ton of publicity that's still outstanding but when you add up all the huge runs they had in the various smaller territories they were one of the top box office teams in the business and if you write them by the number of riots they had, they'd be right on top. <laughs> <laughs> a name that did get in is Bearcat Wright. And he's someone who's been on the cusp of getting in for several years. Obviously a major drawing card in Chicago. Uh, he was really one of the key cogs in the last great period of Fred Kohler's promoting life. Him, Buddy Rogers, you could, there's a few other names. Big star in Los Angeles. Of course, he had problems there eventually, but... That's the story in a lot of places where he goes in and becomes a big star. He has problems with the office or with, in that case, it was what Fred Blassie, I guess, started it. And he disappears. He was the world champion there, first African-American world champion. What are your thoughts on Bearcat Wright? Let me go to you first, Jim. Well, and and I think he was big also in, in like the Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Buffalo area in the early. He was huge, period, in the early 60s. And he had somewhat of the dribble effect in the mid late sixties, but he had cooled off because like you said, every time he got featured somewhere, there was an issue. I don't think it was a, I don't think the thing with Blassie was an issue with Fred Blassie. Personally, I've always heard it's just, he was like, no, I'm not fucking dropping the belt. And and he's a six foot six, 260 pound, former pro boxer. And Blassie then is almost fucking 50. Right. So it didn't end well for Blassie and Blassie didn't know it was coming. Um, and he still got chances after that, which is testimony to how big a drawing card he was at one time. But I don't know. I think for historical value, yes, you know, for historical value, as he was the first African-American world champion of a title that was recognized, at least in semi-legitimately, And for a brief period of time, such a gate attraction, but then his own self-inflicted problems, such as not wanting to drop titles, double-crossing people, you know, always uh, being the complainer in the situation. Um, After the 60s, he was basically nowhere, and he had that one run as a manager in the mid-70s, probably because he needed money. I would have to, I mean, Scott, you were... You were in in Nashville during that time. He came in with the Stomper. Yeah, he came in right after I went to work for Nick. He he came. He's real nice. I, you know, I enjoyed talking with him. I didn't, you know, he wasn't around long, just two, three weeks, I guess. But I mean, was it was had he been working anywhere before that, or did he just pop back into the business? He worked in in uh, Florida for a short time in and for in Tampa for. 72, maybe early 73. I think it was 72, but, uh, he was in there for a short time with Bobby Shane and that group. And, 
but uh, he I, that I can remember, I don't remember him making any big inroads anywhere. You know, after the after you know the yeah. late '60s. I tell you, he 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 uh, was not in Louisville as long as he was in the rest of the Tennessee territory that summer because. That's one of the first pictures I ever gave to Christine Jarrett was the pictures I took of him knocking the shit out of this guy in Louisville. He's managing the stomper as Bearcat Wright, right? <clears throat> and he's 6'7", and he's 260, like I said, and he's just an imposing-looking guy. And this drunk guy comes up, and Bearcat Wright is looking at the ring. He's got his back turned to the people, and this drunk guy just walks up behind him, and all he had was the little rope around the ring in those days. And the guy reaches out and grabs Bearcat's arm like he's going to spin him around, right? And when he grabs his arm, Bearcat does spin around. And the guy punched. And this guy was about 5'6 and about 160. And the guy punched straight out and hit Bearcat right in the stomach. And it was right just looked at for one second, just looked down, didn't sell it at all. And then I didn't know he was a boxer at the time. All of a sudden, pep, pep. A right and a left, the guy was knocked out from the, the, it was a left and a right. The guy was knocked out from the left before the right hit, but the right hit him because it was so fast he hadn't fallen yet. And then when the guy landed, he drew back with these big cowboy boots he had on these size 16 fucking shoes and kicked the guy right in the side of the fucking head. Boom. And that was his evening. That guy was colder than a banker's heart. And it took like 1.7 seconds. And... After that, that's why uh, Teeny requested the pictures. I got I got a chance to take three pictures: one of the guy hitting Bearcat, one of Bearcat hitting him, and one of him standing on the guy's head when he was down on the ground before cool the cops got there. And Bearcat, I don't believe, came back to. He might have been back one more time, and then the lawsuit came in, and he was never back to Louisville. Christine asked you to take those pictures. Well, no, she asked for copies of them because I saw the guy walk up and I said, and I had my little Kodak Instamatic at the time. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> I, I know I you just, weren't in the business at the time. Yeah, no, I was just still sitting on the front row, right, with my Instamatic. And I knew Teeny because we would talk at the gimmick table, right? And But when I saw the guy walk up, I said, oh, this is rich. And I was able to snap those. And, I, and she said, I may need those for evidence. <laughs> I used to hate you, by the way, Scott Teal. I used to hate you every time I'd see your name in the magazine. Before, oh, really? I, got, before I got in the business, because I, then I was just with the Instamatic in the front row, and I mm -hmm. wouldn't get to hang around with all these wrestlers, and I'd see your pictures. It would, they're posing for him. He gets to meet these people. They're no good piece of shit. Holy yeah, you had a lot of heat with me. I love it. <laughs> and, and funny enough, because we mentioned Pat Malone earlier, the first photos of Jim's in the magazines, or at least a lot of the early ones, were credited to Pat Malone. Yeah, yes. That's hilarious. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, because remember, Pat, would he was the one in charge of selling the wrestling news. That was one of his very yes. tasks besides watching the back door. And he would he wanted to, all the guys from Tennessee to be on the covers so that he'd sell more magazines. So he'd get pictures. And send them to Norm Keitzer and say, print this, boy. And well, Norm Keitzer, he didn't know who the fuck Pat Malone was. He just knew that Pat was the guy that was selling his magazines in Tennessee, right? So when he sent those mm -hmm. pictures, okay, photo by Pat Malone. That's hilarious. I mean, he could have sent some guy's driver's license picture and Norm Keitzer would have still credited photo by Pat Malone. 
That's just great. Let me ask you guys about another name, someone who has been very close to getting in but hasn't yet, and that's Sputnik Monroe. Obviously, there's been a big groundswell of support behind him, a lot of people specifically pointing to 1959, the desegregation of wrestling shows at the Ellis Auditorium. Do you think that's enough to put him in, and do you think people are overlooking more of his career when they talk about Sputnik Monroe as a Hall of Famer? Uh, I would have to say yes on Sputnik Monroe. In fact, he fell just uh, a one, I think, uh, let me see, just a few point, three points shy of Bearcat Wright. Uh, so he's he's right on the cusp of being in. I do think uh, his early days, late 50s, uh, probably through the mid-60s, uh, was probably his best years. Of course, later on, he teamed up with uh, – well, he teamed up with Bill Fletcher in the mid-60s as uh, Bill was Rocket Monroe. Then he met Mari High later on and m- named him Rocket Monroe, and they had a good run then too. Uh, but I, to, to me, Sputnik by the probably the 1970-71, I believe his cr- career had really cooled off. But I wouldn't say he was his career was any less spectacular or um, sh- or shorter than Bearcat Wright. So I would say he's right in there. I, and I don't want to get off – well, I want to go back to Sputnik. And, well, let Jim get back on Sputnik. But there's a couple guys, to me, is the same way, who had, I feel, like stellar careers uh, compared to Bearcat or even compared to Sputnik Murrow. And that's Cowboy Bob Ellis, for one. Yeah. And the other is uh, en- Enrique Torres. And neither one of them has made it. And I, that yeah. just – I just don't understand that. I, I voted for Enrique Torres this year, and I completely agree with you. But, Jim, let's go back to Sputnik or anything you want to add. Well, uh, uh, Bob Ellis, I'm with you on it because every time you read something about the the mid-late 50s, early 60s, mid-60s, Bob Ellis was one of the most over baby faces in the business and was yeah, a huge absolutely. draw. And so over the still, you know, Bruiser, I was watching Bob Ellis on Bruiser's TV in 1973, for fuck's sake, because Bruiser took everybody was over. <laughs> the, the most, the biggest attractions of the 50s were working for Bruiser in the 70s. Um, Bob Ellis should be Sputnik, not only the huge run in Memphis and the groundbreaking shit, and not even just the the desegregation issue, but the the, and not even just the big house, but the amount of big houses against Billy Wicks and that he was all over. He was a cultural figure in Memphis. He was in a newspaper constantly. They still remember him obviously to this day, but that overlooks, he worked on top in Georgia and Louisiana. He was the Fuller's go-to heel when they opened yep. a territory. Um, you know, just the, his work, cause he was ahead of his time with taking the big bumps and everything, but he was also ahead of his time with promos. He was, he was one of the first heel promo guys when they started doing heel promos. Um, so yeah, you know, you got to have Sputnik Monroe in a wrestling hall of fame. It's, it's crazy that he wouldn't be. Yeah. Yep. And somebody on Twitter said, who's this Sputnik Monroe guy? And how did he get more votes than CM Punk? And that's why I'm like, that's why I hate <laughs> wrestling these days because of the, some of the people that watch it. You know, another interesting result here was how good James Melby did in the ballot. I was going to bring that. I was getting ready to bring that up. Go right ahead. I'm sorry. Well, let me just say, you know, in the last few years, we've lost several of wrestling's premier historians, Fred Hornby, uh, Jim Zordani, of course, J. Michael Kenyon, and shortly before them, James Melby. 
How do you guys feel about wrestling historians being on the ballot for the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame? And what are your specific thoughts about Jim Melby and his candidacy? Well, that's, for one thing, it's a different category. It's non-performer. So uh, I'm tickled to death to, to know, you know, because before it's always been ring announcers, time, well, not timekeepers, but ring announcers or, uh, oh, help me here. Uh, managers. Managers. Common, yes, LA. managers, promoters, you name it. But uh, I'm tickled to death that Jim Melby was on this, on this, in somewhat of a, a boost, you know, so that historians are a big part of, of saving the history of the business. And uh, it's like I said at CAC when I got the historian award there, I had everybody that was a historian award stand up. And I said, I want all you wrestlers to look at these guys that are standing up because if it weren't for these guys right here, nobody would know who any of you are. And that's exactly the truth. The, the historians like Jim, Jim Melby and, and J. Michael Kenyon, uh, Burt Ray. I just have a found a newsletter today, an old bulletin Matt by Mania. Burt Ray. He used to put Matt Mania. It's a, it was an absolutely great bulletin for its time. Uh, you know, people like him, you know, ought to be in the Hall of uh, in the non or at least have an opportunity to be in the non-performer Hall of Fame, whether they ever get in or not. I don't know. But uh, I'm just I think it's great that Jim Jim got 33 percent of the vote. Now, I don't know if that means overall vote for everything the way it's listed. It doesn't it doesn't really break it down for non-performers. It, he just got 33 percent because uh, Dave Meltzer lists everybody that was on every ballot in on you know in one list so uh to get 33 percent of the vote uh, i think it's great dave brown he got 31 percent. so that says a little bit something about jim melby's uh credibility yeah you know i think that uh, like scott when he said if, if nobody would know who a lot of you guys are if it wasn't for these people they're it's not a performer's category but it is a, an important category in terms of preserving the history and and the whole reason why there is a hall of fame whether it's baseball or football or or whatever the the sport or the occupation for the hall of fame if you don't acknowledge the history of the thing then you have no context you know it, 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 some one of the reasons why some of these pioneers in all sports are in the halls of fame is because they were such standouts that nobody has has yet in modern day been able to top their achievements. Well, how do we know if anybody's topping these achievements or not if we don't keep record of the achievements? So, yeah, I, I like the idea of there being a historian category, and you just mentioned a bunch of guys that, that would qualify. And, you know, not only that, but the fact that, yeah, you talk about these all these, like, football and baseball, these statistics and all problem with wrestling it's it's worse because they definitely you know you've got all these magazines for football and all these other sports that go way back with all the statistics wrestling didn't have it they had the after magazines there's no credibility to any of that. i'm not putting down what bill did what i'm saying is there's no real meat in those, in those magazines as far as what wrestlers have done and their you know how what how many what kind of houses they drew how much how many uh, butts in the seats so the wrestling historians really are um, as far as any sport goes are probably more important than any other sport because you really have to dig to to get true information and not just the bogus stuff put out in programs and magazines by promoters on that topic let me ask you guys about a couple more names before we wrap things up 
But Stanley Weston is on the ballot, and I'm curious what you guys think about his candidacy for the Hall of Fame. Obviously, so many people point to Bill Apter, and they said the Apter mags, but those magazines existed for years before he got there. Do you think Stanley Weston's a Hall of Famer? Was he hands-on enough, or was he more like a Jim Crockett senior for his magazines? Jim, I'll go to you first. Do you look at Stanley Weston and you say that's a wrestling Hall of Famer? No. <laughs> well, now, here's the thing. From what I've, I've never met the gentleman, but from what I've been able to determine, he got into wrestling magazines because he was a magazine publisher. And he saw that there was a, a market for a magazine about wrestling. And I understand, and this is what I think Bill kind of, Bill after doesn't knock anybody. And I'm not asking him to knock anybody. But he does mention that when he first started working for the magazines, a lot of the boys would not talk to him or didn't necessarily trust him because of all the, Stanley Weston in the 60s had gone into the, like, scandal confidential movie magazine you know uh, lurid headlines and had written some shit and several of the guys had heat with he had heat with these guys and they were like you're wait a minute now you uh, bill after you're writing for that stanley weston no i ain't gonna talk to you and bill had to kind of forge a relationship with him a little better um no i you know Purely for making sure that in, especially in some down periods, there were newsstand magazines about wrestling on the newsstands. That's due to Stanley Weston, but I don't really see that he did any particular personal work in his writing or anything else that would qualify him as a Hall of Famer. Talk about Stanley Weston, then you got to talk about Burt Sugar in ring wrestling. And that's uh, the last thing we want to talk about is Burt Sugar. <laughs> well, I know that, but, 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 but yeah, I mean, to me, Stanley Weston, there's a guy head and shoulders above Stanley Weston should be in there due to the amount of work he did both in the days as a fan. And then later on, and that's Norm Kaiser. Well, there you go. Put, he actually was in the wrestling business. He was in it. He yes. printed the programs. He went to shows. He knew the boys. Etc. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He, his name should be up there long before Stanley Weston. And, and I don't know why he's not even on the ballot. If they're considering Stanley Weston, I don't, I don't know where the names come from, but normally the guy that sort of started McDonald's is, is why, you know, instead of the, the place that serves better hamburgers, but it didn't have the publicity. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you guys about another name who was new to the ballot this year. I voted for him. I'm curious your thoughts on Ted Turner as a Wrestling Observer <laughs> Newsletter Hall of Famer. No, he, did, he didn't have anything to do. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I, I think we're both going to say the same thing. Not no, but hell no. I mean, you know, once again, he uh, he's an incredibly important figure in the wrestling industry, but not because he was ever really in wrestling. Even when he owned a wrestling company, he wasn't in the wrestling business. You know, I, I saw Fritz more than I saw Ted Turner. I, <laughs> Fritz would come down to TV every once in a while. I worked for fucking TBS for three years, never saw Ted Turner, but I ran into him one time at the commissary downstairs at Techwood, but that was accidental. Um, I, you know, he was a very important figure, but had absolutely nothing to do with the wrestling business except preserving it in some for others to perpetrate it. 
yeah, he didn't have any hands on hands on anything to do with the wrestling business other than, you know, the company and well, now, wait a minute. providing and, providing a place. And Gunkel may wonder whether he had any hands on experience, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> Before we devolve into the bottom of the toilet, one last name to ask you about here. He is being added back to the ballot next year. He was never on as a singles wrestler or as a singular person. You mentioned earlier, Jim, you voted for the Anderson brothers in the past. Ole Anderson as a single, or at least as a, like I said, a, a someone who was a promoter, a booker, and a wrestler, is being added back to the ballot. I'm a big believer that Ole Anderson's a clear-cut Hall of Famer. Scott, I'll go to you first because you actually did Ole Anderson's book Inside Out with him. What are your thoughts on Ole Anderson as a Hall of Famer? Uh, I, I mean, he had a great career. I mean, look, look at all he did. I mean, between being a great uh, man on the mic, great wrestler, him and Gene, I mean, him and Gene, of course, that's sort of where they were going before as a tag team, but only had a stellar career. And not only that, but he had a great career behind the scenes as a booker. Uh, but I have always said the reasons Ole will never get into the Hall of Fame as a single is because a lot of the wrestlers that are voting hate his guts, <laughs> and that's that 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 will that will stop it right there. They won't vote for him since then. I, I hate to say it, but but a lot of guys won't vote the way they should if they went by. Uh, you know, statistics and crowds and everything else because because of personal feelings. And I don't know, Jim can probably weigh on that as well. Well, yeah, all-time great promo, great look, great matches, great heat, long-term, multiple-decade track record of drawing money, dominated two territories, Georgia and the Carolinas, to the point where he never needed to go anywhere else and, and at, at some points was a main event talent on television in both territories and booking one or the other. Um, was making a quarter of a million dollars in the late seventies in wrestling because he, you know, had a mind for booking as well as being a top main event talent. How can that guy not be a hall of famer? Mm -hmm. I'm just, you know, well, sorry. You were there with him a little bit. Do you think as a booker, he is hurt by 1983 and 1990? Do you think because of that, people overlook his strong booking before that? And again, he booked. At one point, he was booking Georgia and Mid-Atlantic at the same time. Yeah. Well, in 1983, Georgia just the was falling apart because of the, the aftermath of Barnett and talent was coming in and out, but they were also going to Japan. And, he, you know, it was just it, 1983, Georgia was a mess. And, and less said about 1990-whatever WCW, the better. But, but he had been successful and good for a long period of time. Even before that, popcorn started popping in the background. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I was scooting some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, so I mean, it just uh, do we do we take Earth, Wind, and Fire's last album out on them, or do we think about the entire body of work up until that point? Right. On that topic, I, I said one last name before I left. How about, how about one last album? Yeah, I got, I got, uh, I got family to attend to. One last name. The other, th the other thing about those later years is Ole wasn't allowed to book the way he used to book because he had so many people in his ear, in his ear, you know, corporate, corporate, well, yeah, uh, and, and you know, also, WCW guy. Also, he didn't care. 
at that point he no. didn't care because he had tried to retire around 85 ish 86 ish after that little run and they kept oh but we need you to do one thing and he, and he didn't care yep one name i vote for every year and he doesn't get in is the junkyard dog just because i believe oh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's undeniable how successful he was in not just in Mid-South Wrestling, but in transforming Louisiana into being a major territory, which led to Bill Watts having the opportunity to take over Oklahoma. Jim, you were there. What are your thoughts on the Junkyard Dog as a Hall of Famer? Well, yeah, I, I've, I mean, I'm actually had forgotten or would have mentioned that first. Well, how can Bearcat Wright go in the Hall of Fame and the Junkyard Dog is not there? Because <sighs> think about this. The, it, it, he was, dog was just as hot in a smaller part of the country as Bearcat Wright was in Chicago or Los Angeles. Dog for as long was, a time? For, well, what was it, 78 to 84 70, in Mid-South? 79, I would say. Okay, 79, I didn't realize. 79, 79 to 84, you know. It, it, okay. And, and actually was more important to the culture in that part of the country uh, and just people that go to the mall you know, and the, the saints chant, everybody knew dog. Yeah. Um, whereas I don't think Bearcat Wright lit Los Angeles on fire. And, you know, I'm sure he had some competition in Chicago for celebrity status. Um, I mean, they were, neither one of them were Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. in the ring, but <laughs> you know, so yeah, that's a glaring omission. Also, how can JYD not be in a wrestling hall of fame for, for what he did? You don't get yep. that, you know, you don't get, a, a, you don't get that hot, that kind of impact. And people still remember you, you know, 20 years later and he would go in, he would, he got over in Houston, even before Houston was a mid South town. <laughs> the only reason he didn't get over more places was because after mid South, he went to the WWF and you know, the drugs and the complacency, you know, made him fat and lazy, but he had the ability when he was hot to get over anywhere. And that's where we get back to your pick, Jim Bull Curry. He's the same way. He was as hot or drew as much as, you know, as junkyard dog did for a long time. Texas, oh God, for a know, much all over period of time. Yeah. Yep. Do you think the dog is hurt similar to Ole Anderson by that last earth, wind and fire album? Because so many people <laughs> think of him from 85 on when he gained yeah. weight, when he had substance abuse problems, but look, there are guys in the hall of fame. Tiger mask is in the hall of fame for two years. I don't know why they're on the ballot this way, but they got a lot of votes. Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson with J.J. Dillon as a combination. They were only a combination as an actual team for, what, two years? Two and a half years? Yeah, yeah. And they're there. How do you deny the five years that JYD had in Mid-South Wrestling? To me, it's undeniable. But again, I think too many people look at the last several years of, of his albums, and they go, well, he was fat, he was lazy in the ring, he had the worst Ric Flair match in 1990 that anyone had ever seen. <laughs> And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. What do these guys that are voting, what do they really know about him? You know, they, they know he was hot for a while, but then they probably remember, like you said, the bad years, the drug years. So, so all that probably, you know, take, they don't study history. We would keep coming back to this, this whole hall of fame discussion today to me, I think the thing has jumped out at me the most is the fact that 
most people do not, the wrestlers, fans, they do not study history. They, they know a little bit about it, but they don't study it enough to really realize who made the impacts, who was big names. You ask most people today about Bearcat Wright, they couldn't tell you the first thing about him, you know, except he was a big name in, in Chicago for a while, you know. So, you know, I don't know. I concur wholeheartedly. I agree as well. But, Scott, as we close things out, you mentioned before there was someone at the bottom of the list you wanted to talk about. Why don't we end the segment with you talking about, I'm not sure who you want to talk about, but let's hear it. Uh, the one that's on the very bottom of the list is Don Fargo. People don't realize, but Don Fargo main evaded every single territory he went to. And I'm talking about from L.A., Cleveland, Nashville, uh, everywhere. Uh, he was on top. He New was a, a main event guy. Chicago, man, they saw it. Yeah, New York. Absolutely. They sold out uh, Chicago over and over. Him and uh, Jim, uh, what's his name? Kenny, Kenny, uh, Kenny Mack. I mean, he was a huge name. Every single territory he went to. But why he doesn't get more votes than that, I don't know. But there's names above him that d didn't do, have near the impact that he did over the years. Well, I can tell you why. Because, number one, he did all that under about 15 different names. Well, that's and part, Yes. And secondly, it's almost all before video, even though there are still some matches, uh, you know, in his final years in the ring, you know, it, it, he did those showboat tapings in Vegas for the AWA in the mid eighties. He's the only guy, his career started when wrestling was on the Dumont network and he was on it and he hung around long enough to be on ESPN. Close it out. Um, but, you know, yeah, that's another one of those guys that he's overlooked because he was always a member of a team. He changed gimmicks. It was before the video era. But when you talk about his influence, I mean, you mm -hmm. know, he and Jackie gave birth to the Fabulous Ones, which gave birth to rock and roll tag teams. There would be no Rock and Roll Express. There'd be, there might not be anybody wearing bandanas if it wasn't for the Fargos because that you can trace the lineage back. <laughs> he was a main event guy in every territory. He did everything. And if, if, as far as longevity, it was, you know, over 30 years. So, you know, that's, uh, that's enough. And, and the Fargo's as far as uh, at the box office, they sold out the garden. They sold out the Northeastern cities. Yes, it was with rock and Perez, but then they came to Nashville and came to Tennessee and sold out so much for so long that, 30 years later, they were able to base a tag team off of the fucking guys that hadn't been wrestling in 20 fucking years. So, yeah. The, but we could make a lot of cases for a lot of these guys, and it just comes down to there's so many, and people, as you said, mm -hmm. Scott, know so little. Yes. Well, it seems like a great place to end this segment. So, boy, gentlemen. it sure does. My in-laws are sc are screaming at me now. <laughs> <laughs> we continue our look at this year's class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame with two esteemed guests on the line. First, we're going to go to Southern California, a man who has done it all. He has refereed, he has promoted, he has caused trouble, he has been dead apparently at least in the eyes of Dr. Miglano, on two different occasions, he's your friend and mine, the late Dan Farron. Dan, thanks for being here today. Uh, thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure. And this is your first year of actually being a voter for the Hall of Fame, correct? Yes. It's a, it's finally, I got a, I got a ballot this year, and I was very excited about it because having 
been reading the Observer since the mid '80s, and I uh, always kind of wanted to, to jump in there and be able to vote. And now I finally can. Also on the line with us is another esteemed guest. This is another man who has done it all. He has promoted. He has wrestled. He's caused much more trouble than Dan Farron, especially to the Athletic <laughs> Commission. He's your friend and mine, Marty Goldstein. Marty, thanks for being back on the Super Podcast today. I'm so happy to be joining you and to be able to meet the, the late Dan Farron. Dan, my sister runs a Jewish funeral chapel, so if you ever don't croak again, I guess she won't be making the arrangements. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I definitely will look into many different ways of uh, celebrating my demise at some point. We all will, I'm sure. Hey, Marty, yeah. how many years have you been a voter for the Hall of Fame? Do you know? I I was trying to track that. I've been able to find my ballot going back to 2014. I've got 14, 16, 17. I'm, I think probably 13 might have been my first year, and I've been voting ever since. Well, let's quickly here at the top of the segment talk about each of your ballots. Dan, let's go to you first. Who was on yeah. your ballot, the very first ballot you have submitted for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Well, I basically broke it down between the, the two areas that I felt most comfortable with. That is Lucha Libre. I've been a fan for the years of that. And also just the, the, the old school wrestlers. Um, so when I looked at it, the one thing that, that I've been chopping at the bit the last couple of years and, and finally happened was that uh, I, I really want, thought that the death missionaries needed to be in there. They were the first people I actually voted for on the, on the actual ballot. Uh, in the Lucha Libre area, I also voted for Briano Three, uh, Los Brazos, and Carlos Lagarde. Um, from the uh, the old timers, I went uh, with Bearcat Wright, Enrique Torres, Spudnik Monroe, uh, Chavo Guerrero Senior, uh, and then Ricky Starr, and then among the the non wrestling, uh, Larry Matisic, uh, Morris Siegel, Owen. Um, the Grand Wizard, and Jim Melby. Was there one other name on your ballot? No, you... I haven't forgotten one. <laughs> oh, Did you vote for Edge? Edge? Yeah, right. Oh, I voted for Edge. He was, he, was the only, uh, he was the only current guy that I actually voted for was Edge. But that, you can see that was, a, that was an afterthought because I didn't even remember it at this that, point. That's so. right. That's right. I'm glad I remembered it. But Marty, who was yeah. on your ballot this year? I'm surprised the amount of overlap between Dan and I actually, uh, and I voted for Edge. One of the one of the ballots I'm not finding in in my email search, uh, and that's what happens. You have so many identities, I guess, Brian. But I know I voted for Edge uh, in the past. This year, uh, the historical performers were Johnny Rujo, Enrique Torres, and Bearcat Wright, and I've been voting for Torres. Uh, all the way back to my 2014 ballot. The modern performers in the U.S. and Canada, I voted for Rick Martel. In Japan, I voted for uh, Kota Ibushi. Uh, in Mexico, Carlo Flagard, Los Brazos, and the Death Missionaries. Uh, in the uh, rest of the continent, so to speak, Johnny Saint and Ricky Starr. And among the non-wrestler category, uh, Jim Crockett Sr., who I've been voting for for years, uh, Gato, James Melby, Don Owen, and Stanley Weston. Well, let's talk about a few names there that all three of us voted for, one who got in, one who didn't get in. All three of us voted for Bearcat Wright, and all three of us voted for Enrique Torres. Let's start with Enrique Torres. Dan, this is your first year voting. Why did you think yeah. it was important to have Enrique Torres on your ballot? You know, one of the things that worries me from time to time is that uh, there are certain guys that are going to be lost in history that because of the where the area they came in or whatever or you know how historians looked at them that they would be forgotten. And I think it's really easy for a lot of people to 
overlooking Ricky Torres. Um, I, I wasn't I wasn't that familiar with him until about 10, 12 years ago when I was at a convention and they actually had uh, members of his family there. Um, and they actually brought one of his belts and, and a little, I, I never forgot it, a little brown case with red velvet inside. That was one of the, uh, the, the championship belts. Um, and then I started kind of like digging in and looking at it. And there's not all, there's some stuff, there's some tape because luckily he was around in the forties and fifties and, and with the advent of television, uh, he was quite popular, but, uh, there was something about him. He, he's such a classic baby face. Uh, he had the look, he had the moves, uh, he could work with Gorgeous George, he could work with Luthez, uh, Baron Michelle Leone, um, and I just feel like he's he's kind of disappearing, you know, he's kind of fading into the background, and uh, unless you're an, an older historian or whatever, or somebody who really digs deep, that it'd be very easy to, to overlook him, and that's that's what concerned me more than anything else. Yeah, I, I voted for him in just the ones I've, I've scrounged up. And I think actually in taking another look, I, uh, the first ballot I received was actually in 2011. But I've been voting for him consistently, certainly from 2014. Uh, my familiarity with him is a little bit different. Uh, I firstly only knew of him in the, the you know the growing up as a wrestling fan uh, because Ramon Torres, uh, his, I think, youngest mm-hmm wrestling brother did a tour here in the AWA up here in 71 72 and teamed with a very young Don Morocco and and did you know did very well in that mid-card role and so I was familiar that he had wrestling brothers but really for me it was when that magical period of time when I was commuting to and then living for a while out of Los Angeles from 2001 to 2000 and in 2001, 2002, it was pretty much uh, actually for about three years. And um, the industry I was involved in there, which I was brought in through my old tag team partner, Dirty Dan Denton, uh, there was a lot of wrestling fans that grew up in L.A., in, in SoCal, and would talk about Mil Mascaras, Freddie Blassie, John Tolis, and Torres was a name that came up. And uh, in the last few years, I've read the, the research about him, the great record he had as a world champion, the respect that Luthez and others had for him. It's obvious to me, especially a guy who was recognized the world champion at the onset of the television era uh, and the the wrestling from Hollywood tape was bicycled uh, throughout, uh, maybe not Canada, but through uh, through the, the U.S., that this is a guy who, aside of the fact he may not have been overly well-known outside of California and Georgia and a couple of other places, his his uh, record as a champion, as a champion who true, uh, makes him deserving of inclusion. And I share Dan's concern that this is the kind of an old-timer um, that uh, if if those of us that have the knowledge, don't promote that name, then uh, it's just going to be uh, another one of these who's he. And uh, every every modern-day wrestling fan should familiarize themselves with uh, with the record Torres has had as, as a great ethnic champion in the uh, 40s and 50s. When I was going to the San Bernardino Arena every week in the mid-70s, uh, you know, you start talking to the fans there, either the you know second generation fans who have been going there whose parents went there previously or some of the older fans there and like you were saying that sometimes the uh, Enrique's name would come up all come up all the time and they, and people would be like oh he was something that guy was really really something so I mean a, a legend starts to build I mean you consider the fact that you know like I said there's not enough um, tape of him or whatever I mean this word of mouth I mean fans. 20, you know, 30 years later, in some cases, still remembered him. Uh, like I said, I think it's it's a real uh, disservice uh, that he not be in the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And as I said, I, I've consistently voted for him since at least 2014 and, and maybe earlier. Uh, and uh, and I'm going to keep voting for him because as, as we as we all agree collectively, this is a name that reserve, deserves to be remembered, that d- deserves to be in the pantheon, the upper echelon of of great wrestlers who exemplified what the sport was built on. And again, I hearken back to the fact that in an era that was highly competitive, uh, where he was being presented as the world champion uh, across where the syndication went or however they bicycled the tapes, uh, you think of all the great wrestlers, all the legendary names that could have been put in that position in California, and he was the man. Uh, And another thing that that speaks to my mind to uh, the... Uh, viability of Torres as a candidate is the respect that his peers had for him. Uh, nobody ever questioned his bona fides. He only wasn't a bigger star because he chose, if I'm remembering correctly, or his family considerations. But this guy would have been an enormous star with his good, not only his good looks, but with his skill in the ring and his charisma. And uh, it's, um, uh, it's, you know, he's not, I don't see Torres the same way, uh, you know, there's, uh, Brian, that traditional sort of cutoff line the uh, the wa is it the Wahoo Dickie Murdoch sort of level I guess and Torres to me is clearly above that line. Do you think part of the problem is for at least historians and maybe some reporters? I think there are a lot of younger people voting who simply wouldn't know who Enrique Torres is. A lot of the reason is there isn't a lot. You know there aren't major articles being written about Enrique Torres. There aren't videos being put out there. The story of Enrique Torres for. Older fans or historians who vote, do you think he gets unfairly lumped in with, and nothing against Alberto and Ramon Torres, but they weren't at that Hall of Fame level, at least in my eyes. Do you think that may hurt his candidacy? That's an interesting hypothesis that he's more identified uh, from the latter part of his career in the six-man tag and the the wars they would have with the Vachon brothers uh, in in Atlanta. I think that you might really have caught on to something that that his the and he was uh, a vastly uh how do i put this he was a vastly more accomplished wrestler as a singles competitor than than his brothers and ramon torres was a i don't remember seeing uh alberto but ramon torres when i saw him still had he still had quite a bit of go to him but Enrique Torres was a, a level ahead, and I think you're right that uh, becoming a team player, so to speak, ended up uh, diminishing his reputation as a single superstar. Yeah, I think you hit it on the head, Brian. I think you actually did. That's that's a very good point. Well, on the topic of guys who held the world title in Los Angeles, and Dan, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about the rest of your ballot in a bit, but you have obviously some big Southern California legends on here like Chavo Guerrero Sr., and of course... Mm-hmm. Bearcat Wright. All three of us voted for Bearcat Wright. He did get in this year. And here's a guy who, at least in my eyes, wasn't talked about for a number of years. And then I feel like there was a groundswell of support around the fact that he was the first widely recognized African-American world champion. He was a big drawing card in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in the Northeast, everywhere he went. Why do you think Bearcat Wright is important to be in the Hall of Fame, and why do you think it's taken so long? Marty, let me start with you. Um, I think that the, there is something, and I was doing some reading about this probably last night, that there is, I think, something to the idea that the reputation that Wright had for not doing business uh, and hurting Freddie Blassie, I think it's it just made people stop and not really look deeper into his career. I saw Bearcat Wright on the uh, Vancouver 
uh, all-star wrestling tape that was syndicated across Canada. And that would have been a very brief period of time. Bearcat Wright might have been around 71. I don't even think it was it was after that where I saw him. It was very, very brief. But even then, as a kid, I knew that he had had a prior reputation uh, as a top-flight babyface challenger uh, in Chicago, certainly. Uh, and and um, when when you look at his at how strong he was uh, as a competitor, as a as a drawing card, and as well uh, the kinds of obstacles that would have been placed in his way because of the nature of uh, the racialization of uh, of uh, America uh, at that time, a lesser extent Canada and other environs, I guess. But this guy is clearly a, a Hall of Fame uh, level wrestler from his prime. And again, this is a guy uh, right where I think the uh, the absence of film and tape worked against him um you know it, it, it if i'm remembering correctly brian was he not involved in a strike in gary indiana where he refused to wrestle am i thinking correctly there was bearcat right around 1960 that he refused to wrestle unless they start integrating matches uh and and I, don't know. I think i think i remember reading that uh, and i know it was gary indiana and i think it was bearcat right so, you know, there's a guy where maybe he got a bit of the bad mouth put on him by some promoters because he was making waves, right? And his name wasn't Sputnik Monroe. Uh, <laughs> such a talented, uh, such a talented, physically talented guy and great with his fists. And uh, also, is, as I recall, a, 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 like a better talker than Earl Maynard, for instance. Um, uh, and I, I think that this is where, and I I'm, I'm, would think it would be... Uh, Steve, you know, the California, some of the California historians that have really um, done a great service to us traditionalists by doing, putting in the time as, uh, and putting in the research and bringing forward the facts uh, of, of, how, of, you know, what guys like, uh, like uh, Enrique Torres and a guy like Bearcat Wright did in terms of the title defenses, the houses he was drawing, the list of opponents that he would uh, go through rivalries with. Uh, but when I read up on that, this year, he was to me without. I did not hesitate uh, in adding him uh, to my ballot. Uh, you know, in the past, you know, in terms of guys that spent time in California, for instance, uh, in previous years, the last five years, I'd voted for Wilbur Snyder, I'd voted for uh, John Tolis, and for uh, for uh, Mark Lewin as well. Uh, and uh, when I measured up. Uh, and Pedro Morales too. So there's all a bunch of guys that all starred in California at different points. But Bearcat Wright to me was a bigger star in California than Tolis, and I didn't hesitate to vote for Tolis in the past. Well, Dan, you are a Southern California guy, and you're someone who's been around for yep. a long time and was a fan, obviously, before you were in the business. And you know, you're friends with guys like Jeff Walton, who was actually, I think Jeff was actually there the night of the Blassie Bearcat Wright match slash incident. So, what do you think about Bearcat Wright? You obviously voted for him, and he did get in. But what did you yeah. what did you think about his candidacy? But also, in all the years you were around wrestling in Southern California, what did you hear about him? Uh, um, that's what, that's what I was laughing at when you guys were talking about that because when you do talk to the old timers that are here, uh, Bearcat didn't do himself a lot of favors uh, when he was out here. Uh, like I said, anything anything that involved. Uh, you know, working with Blassie, where if, if you couldn't work with Blassie, uh, then you, you had a lot of problems with the guys out here. And uh, when I would talk to some of the other uh, the, the other wrestlers about the old timers, uh, they usually just kind of shook it, shook their heads. And I kind of, I think for the longest time, that I wasn't that um, in, interested in Bearcat just in general. 
Uh, but like as, as you were talking about before, the groundswell the last few years is saying, hey, maybe we need to rethink this and relook at it because, you know, for God's sakes, if we start eliminating anybody who has been troublesome in their career, uh, you know, there's going to be nobody in the Hall of Fame before it's over with. Um, but uh, I, I do I, – I've tried to talk to Gene LaBelle on occasion about it. Um, Gene is very, very uh, – very, very kayfabe. Uh, but all I know is what I do remember one night having a Chinese food with a bunch of guys out here, and I asked him about Bearcat Rights, and he looked at me, and he smiled, and he just looked down. What did he say? Uh, I mean, that he didn't say a word. He just looked at me, smiled, and he looked down at his plate and kept on eating. You know, uh, like, he, like there was a secret memory that he picked up at that point, you know, that he remembered, but he didn't want it to, uh, to basically start talking about it because you can't get Gene to ever play kayfabe, hardly at all. Well, and of course, it was Gene that was sent into the ring that night after the Bearcat mm-hmm. right Freddie Blassie double cross. Bearcat then yep. was about to get double cross. He didn't know he was going to be wrestling Gene LaBelle, and Gene LaBelle, who the average fan saw as the somewhat goofy announcer acting scared, mm-hmm. didn't realize he was the baddest guy in the building. So all of a sudden, Judo oh, and the bell's in the ring and Bearcat Wright turns around and leaves and never comes back. And Gene's still that way. I mean, even in, <laughs> well in his 80s now, uh, I, you know, my feeling about him is I, I jokingly said, I'm never going to get in the position where I, he's close enough to, to put anything on me, any, any hold on me, ready to move <laughs> on me. Because he still is one of the toughest men that I've ever met my entire life. I think it's notable, Brian and, and Dan, that uh, when uh, when you look at the breakdown, the vote breakdown by category, uh, that among historians, Bearcat Wright was number one. And I think that tells yeah. the story right there. This wasn't a situation where a guy uh, received a balance of votes between active wrestlers, retired wrestlers, you know, some sort of a balance like that. Uh, but that among historians, he w- he was uh, the, the top vote getter. So, again, clearly um, – you know, I don't know how, if this is comparable to any other kind of a Hall of Fame. Baseball is probably the one with the, you know, with the greatest statistical depth, where maybe you uncover, you know, some measurement by which you realize that a uh, a second baseman or a third baseman is actually better than five of the guys that are in his position. But I, I wonder if there's a little bit of that at work with Wright when you look again, when you reflect on his uh, the range of his opponents, uh, the way he the way he drew, how strong. Uh, of a of an attraction he was uh, that it became realized that this is a guy that again because uh, look obviously um if there was such things as fan fests or whatever back in the day or just casual conversations with uh, with fans or sportscasters obviously Gene LaBelle wasn't about to start chatting up the greatness of Bearcat Wright uh, compared to Charlie Moto or or somebody else that uh, yeah. you know that he was buddies with right right exactly Marty, let me ask you about a couple names on your ballot uh, who are from Canada. Obviously, you are Canadian, although you're not from Quebec. There no, two, I'm not. There are two noted wrestlers from Quebec on here. Tell me first why you voted for Johnny Rougeau. Johnny Rougeau is a very significant character. Uh, again, not so much in Canadian wrestling, but certainly in Quebec. Uh, he, um, you know, as the patriarch of the Rougeau family, this guy was... Uh, right up there with, as a, you know, damn near a god, a sporting god in Quebec. Uh, he was a great baby face for many years. Uh, even as late as 72 or 73, he was doing a program with Don Leo Jonathan for, for their world title uh, with uh, Don Leo as the heel and, uh, and Rougeau chasing. And uh, it, 
he was again a consistent top drawing card for a long time. Now, granted, you you read uh, Pat Laprade's uh, 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 book about uh, Quebec or you know the Vachon, you can see it's uh, you've got you got a little bit of the uh, you know the ability to keep yourself on top working, so to speak. But to me, Rougeau among Canadians. When I look at great Canadian wrestlers that I and I've gone out of my way to vote for some Canadians in the past uh, who have not been successful candidates, uh, but to me Johnny Russo is a standout. Um, uh, if and again I'm going by a somewhat somewhat jagged memory uh, here, but uh, Russo also drew drew in the in his in the states to some extent, uh, and I just see him. Uh, you know, this would be, an ex- again, an example of a great Montreal Canadian hockey player that maybe was overshadowed by, in this case, Whipper Watson being more famous from the 50s and 60s era, uh, but where he was... Or Yvonne Robert. Uh, maybe more Yvonne, well, Yeah, you know, Robert is viewed as a level above uh, above Rougeau. Uh, the mystique of Robert included the... You know, the, the allegations or uh, the rumors, I don't want to call it allegations really, but the chatter about him having an affair with Jean Beliveau's wife and, and such things. I mean, Rougeau is uh, not – he followed in Robert's footsteps and to do so in Quebec especially and still – which is a very per, uh, parochial uh, culture there. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to explain I think really to the rest of North America how peculiar – Montreal has been with regards to the way it adopts sports heroes and especially the homegrown heroes and 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 glorifies them. Uh, but um, nobody ever said I never heard anybody ever talk about Rougeau in a demeaning manner in comparing him to Robert. He was seen as the you know the torch was passed uh, and uh, Rougeau was such you know he was a good he was a good wrestler and he was a great. He he had babyface fire, man. Like he he knew, he knew how to fire up. He was, as I understand it, he was much more generous than uh, what was the phrase that Whipper Watson used to use about Stu Hart? He's not too generous on the returns. Uh, Johnny Russo <laughs> did. Johnny Russo didn't have a problem selling for somebody to get the most out of the match. Another name, someone who I actually see as maybe slightly below the Dick Murdoch level. Although I've always been open to being talked out of it, but I've never seen Rick Martel as being a wrestling observer newsletter hall of famer at a certain, you know, there's a certain level, I guess I look at guys that they have to be at to be in the hall of fame. Why did you vote for Rick Martell and make the case? Why is Rick Martell a hall of famer? Rick Martell's uh, in my mind. And I, I wavered on that a bit. And I would just want to be clear in the past. I voted for edge. I voted for George Gordienko, who I think is an, an obvious hall of famer, but will never get in because of the, essentially what Dave Meltzer probably needs to consider as a veterans committee type thing. But Martel broke in young, uh, part of a successful family, learned quickly, was headlining in in New Zealand and Hawaii at a and, – and I, as I recall, bought a piece – I don't remember which office it was. I think it was New Zealand, owned a piece of the office. He was a star everywhere he went. I think that Martel, again, the, the modern – viewer, the modern voter, looking at him from 84 and on, uh, maybe doesn't get just how great Rick Martel was through the 70s and into the early 80s. His first chase of the title with Bockwinkel, I was shocked they didn't put the title on him. His first run through in the AWA. Uh, This guy was on fire. 
Uh, and he, um, again, you, when you saw him as a tag team champion, uh, was he partners with Gurria in New York? That's right, yes. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, another one of the revolving Gurria <laughs> partners. Uh, and and uh, like my good friend Dean Hall. And Martel was a standout everywhere he went. Uh, when people saw him by 85, 86, 87, and the, the stint he had with the AWA title, and we saw him regularly, of course, up here in that era, uh, and, and uh, I met him subsequent to that. Um, you know, by then, he had lost that boyish appeal. And he was becoming the more mature babyface. He had thickened out, uh, so to speak. Uh, and uh, he was getting by, you know, more on, on his smarts. I mean, you look at at, at not just the, his team with Tito Santana as Force, which was a hell of a good tag team. But his heel turn, he was a – he that turn uh, – it's the turn itself, I'm not saying, was the best thing since sliced bread. But as a heel, he embraced that. And when he came back to WCW, which was as late as 96 or 97, working babyface, and he ends up with the TV title, he he was having tremendous matches against a variety of opponents. And you look at him in that era uh, where he's not being pushed at the top tier, top shelf, you know. Uh, my God, a program with Martel in his prime and Randy Savage would have been fantastic. So I see that Martel had a lot of influence in different territories, including New Zealand, including Quebec. Uh, Drew, again, I'm going by memory, but Atlanta, I think he did very well there. Um, uh, and uh, across Canada, uh, he was the wrestling hero across Canada before Bret Hart assumed that mantle, which really you know, wasn't until the 1990s and the 80s. Bret, uh, um, after the uh, denouement, so to speak, uh, when Whipper Watson faded from the scene and whenever he retired, 73, after he was crippled in a car accident, really the biggest national stars uh, were, you know, Kaniski and, and to me, Martel, because he hit a lot of territories. Uh, another thing with Martel that people don't realize is he got great play on the BCTV tape when he was in Portland and uh, teaming with Roddy Piper and doing a program against the Sheep Herders in Vancouver and uh, and almost getting uh, wiped out while driving with uh, with Piper by uh, Mount St. Helens. But uh, <laughs> Martel had a lot of visibility uh, through from 75, 74, 75 on. Um, and so I feel that he's uh, I feel he's worthy of discussion. You know, again, uh, Brian uh, and Dan, this is such a balancing act when you only have 10 selections. It's only it's like one from Canada, three from the States, you know. Uh, two from the Pacific Rim. So it's a balancing act in terms of what you want to get across in your ballot every year. And sometimes it's to send a message, uh, you know, to make sure that names are, are remembered and, and to push them on. I'm like, again, I've been voting for Enrique Torres for five years. <laughs> How did that happen? Right. <laughs> so, so part of it is, is, you know, strategic in the realm of, you know, it, it, I look at this a little bit like it's a religion. Uh, you know, if, I mean, growing up, did Brian, did Brian last me want to go to synagogue? Do we want to go watch wrestling? There's <laughs> no choice, right? Yeah. And so to me, Martel, I can understand what you're saying, that it's a thing where you can be talked into it. I think when you study his record, I think when you study his record, I think that you see he's a very – he is, in fact, a strong candidate. And I personally – I don't know that everybody would buy it. I personally can see him being at a Murdoch level. Uh, I don't know that Martel was ever a great draw in uh, Japan or internationally necessarily. Uh, but domestically, I think uh, I think Martel was uh, 
more appealing to the fans, honestly, than than Dickie Murdoch, and probably in some ways more appealing to the promoters because Martel's behavior wasn't exactly off the rails very often. Well, you hit on something there, and this is a, a frequent topic. We could see a lot of Rick Martel footage from whatever, 1980 on, but there isn't a lot of that early babyface Rick Martel footage. There just isn't footage like that around. Dan, I'd like your thoughts about Rick Martel, but also, before we get there, you voted for Chavo Guerrero Sr., or just Chavo Guerrero, yeah. as he was known when he was main eventing in Los Angeles. A lot of people yes. may only know him from his work in the 1980s. And although he was used in a good position in places like Houston, Texas, in the Southwest, he also was used in other places not as well. So talk a little bit about why you voted for Chavo Guerrero. Uh, Chavo Guerrero was my big sentimental choice. I decided that when I found it together, I was going to be very analytical about everything, but I was going to just do one from my gut. And it turned out to be Chavo because I was lucky enough to basically – Watch the, the the whole the whole career. I I remember when he came in in the mid seventies to Los Angeles. I still remember the angle that they brought him in. They they used Ernie Ladd to get him over, and um, it, you know he was he was doing stuff. And he was really doing stuff at that time, even in L.A. with a lot of the Lucha Libre wrestlers. He was doing stuff at that time that other people, you know, moon salts and things like that 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 nobody else was doing. And I know that. Uh, some people sometimes uh, felt like um, uh, when, when you're doing those kind of moves and whatever, it's a little, it's a little, uh, little wonky at times. I mean, there, there's not, there's not a, a lot of cooperation between the guys, and that's partially because the fact is that he's doing, he was doing things that uh, that other people weren't doing, and uh, I also, I, I have never really. This, uh, having watched wrestling in the seventies, I like my wrestling to be a little ragged. I, I doesn't have to be exactly perfectly timed, and everything doesn't have to be, uh, you know, uh, exactly perfect. I wanted, to, I wanted it to look a little real. And Chavo had great fire. Team um, all throughout, and I, I firmly believe that uh, while that Roddy Piper would have succeeded in any way, shape, or form, obviously on his own, um, in the very beginning. Um, Chavo Guerrero was the guy that, that was the perfect marriage partner for Roddy Piper out here and helped develop uh, that Piper persona. Uh, I know that Piper always spoke very fondly of him. And I remember, even though some people claim that they went back to the well too often, there were too many Piper-Chavo matches. But uh, several years ago, uh, at one of the Russell reunions here, they, they did an old-timers uh, Royal Rumble. And uh, I remember at one point, Piper was in there and Chavo got in there. And things kind of broke up a little bit, where the two of them were just standing there staring at each other. And you felt this vibration in the room. You felt this, this rumble of, oh, my God, oh, my God, we're seeing Piper and Chavo again. We're seeing Piper and Chavo again. And... Um, I, I I know that he could be, and I've worked with him on on occasion. He could, he could be quite prickly at times. Uh, Mondo Guerrero tells the story about how when he first wanted to come out here and work, uh, Chavo told him no that that this was his thing, and he didn't want Chavo, he didn't want Mondo coming out here uh, and then peeping on his thing. That, that he would let him come out and wrestle, but he you know, he was never going to be pushed any any higher than than mid card. Uh, so like a lot of the old timers, he was very protective. Uh, and could be and could be quite difficult to deal with at the time. Uh, that's why Danny Hodge was always around. Uh, but it basically, um, it, there was something watching him, especially the matches in Japan, and 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 even as he got older, 
I hate to think that most modern wrestling fans will remember Chavo Guerrero as Chavo Classic. Uh, you know, the, the, the bubbling guy who was there for his son at that point. Um, I, I, I think that he really is um, underestimated in his work and uh, because of the fact that he didn't move around a lot and he could be quite irritable at times and, and, and things like that. That, that held him back to some extent. But I definitely feel, having to watch the trajectory of his entire career, um, that this guy is, deserves a, a lot more credit than he oftentimes gets. A name that both of you voted for, and I haven't, someone who, if we're talking about high flyers, was one of the very first, Ricky Starr. I'd like to know what mm-hmm. the thought process was in voting for Ricky Starr. Dan, let me start with you. Well, as they say all the time, you know, you got a guy who's a former ballerina who's doing ballerina moves in the ring, and he's a babyface, and he's getting over. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I mean, that that alone says something about it. And I know that when I have talked to the old-timers about Ricky Star, you would think that they'd be like, oh, he's a flipper, he does this and this, that, and whatever. But there was a lot of respect for Ricky Star, And uh, I think that he came up with one of the, the more original gimmicks that was around at that time. And he and he brought something to he brought some a lot of entertainment to wrestling um, that the, you know that that wasn't particularly what wrestling was at that time. It was very very different. And for him to get over with the fans like he did, um, I, I really think there's a lot about him. And again, not a lot of stuff uh, exists on Ricky Star. Uh, if you're lucky enough, you can find a Mr. Ed episode that he acted in. Or he played wrestler, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think that he he is someone who people need to pick up the torch and kind of walk a little bit because he deserves to be looked at. I'm inclined to agree. I think is that that he achieved such international fame uh, is overlooked. I mean, again, we tend to be very uh, North American centric. And then on top of being North American centric, we're going to be AWA or NWA or WWWF centric. Uh, but Ricky Starr to me, uh, and I'm just going to take a fast uh, a fast look here and see if I uh, see how long I've been plugging him. Yeah, 2017. So I've been voting for him for three years. Uh, probably not before 2017. The fact that he was an international attraction and also he was very uh, extraordinarily unique, as Dan's pointed out, to, to get across um, as a as a, a light in the loafer's baby face was not the easiest thing. And he he managed to find the, the right formula. Uh, and I've I've heard great things about him. Um, in terms of his adaptability, that there, you know, I've never heard any anything. Ah, not like I've heard, you know, uh, the five books of the Bible's worth about Ricky Starr, but I've heard that he was able to have a, a good match with anybody, and that that he was. Uh, how do I put this? His popularity seems counterintuitive. You know, when people look back and they don't know who he was, they would instantly think this is some early version knockoff gorgeous George uh, George you know Adrian Adonis's great uncle or something don't, and the the another thing that works in his favor that I don't know that we've mentioned is he was by reputation a very good wrestler yeah yeah and that counts to me that counts for something if a guy can work uh, you know he's not just a gimmick performer this is a guy who could work and but it was the gimmick that made him money uh, so, uh, I've been, I've been on that bandwagon for Ricky Starr from the looks of it for at least three years. And, and, uh, uh, I think I'm, I want to just take a look where he landed with the, uh, on the, 
The historians only had him at my at uh, number twenty six. Go figure. Yeah, which I don't understand that because, uh, as you were saying, you have to be a very good wrestler to do what he did. You know, it, that, 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 I don't understand why there's not more love for him. To tell you the truth. To a modern fan who never saw Ricky Starr, I guess maybe the best comparison, even though it's not that modern, would be Lanny Poffo in terms of in-ring style. Would you say that's correct? Ooh, that makes me grimace already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, would you say that's incorrect? <laughs> Ooh, um, uh, I mean, I think to uh, to the casual fan who looks at it, it, it would seem to be that way. Um, but again, there's there's a reason why uh, Lanny Poffa was mid-card, um, not kind of relatives, uh, and there's a reason why Ricky Starr was a, an international star all over the world. Uh, I'm I'm friends with, with Lanny Poffo, uh, and uh, he was still in the ring as of Canada Day, uh, as of uh, July 1st, and uh, I, I would put it this way. I think Lanny... You know, Lanny was different in that he was more, uh, I, I'm not sure muscle bound's quite the right phrase, but, uh, you know, Lanny focused on bodybuilding, and I don't know that you can, you can compare sort of the act, but not necessarily the wrestling style, I think, is a, the way yeah. to explain it. Uh, yeah, no disrespect to, and certainly no disrespect to either, but, you know, Lanny Poff was a very humble, he's one of the most humble, genuine guys you're ever going to be able to sit and have a Dr. Pepper with. And he, I, I don't think he, he would harbor any illusions about uh, him uh, being being put in the same category as Ricky Starr in terms of, uh, you know, fame and fortune and, and such things. Well, on the topic of high flyers, I got to ask you about one on your ballot, Marty. I am kind of surprised to see him here. I don't see him as a Hall of Famer, so I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. Why did you vote for Kota Ibushi? Uh, from the Japanese crop uh this is a guy who's had just consistent huge draws granted he's been in main event spots with top workers but uh, to me he's just been on a streak that is is at that level i i want to preface this by saying uh before anybody else says yes i'm friends with kenny omega and i didn't vote for him i think the guys like kenny a lot of these guys uh uh you know there's time to get them on in this case i looked at it um and I, I, I'm assuming that it was either on the uh, Wrestling Classics Observer Forum or it might have been an, an issue of the Observer itself that went over uh, just the, the tremendous record that Ibushi has, has established uh, in that chop-drawing position uh, against a variety of opponents. And uh, that's the short, the short version of why I, I voted for him. And I only did cast uh, one vote uh, in that category for, from Japan this year. So it's also just as much as, you know, not, you know, if I'm just going to vote for one of them, uh, vote for somebody that I think, again, deserves to, you know, people see that uh, 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 Ibushi, okay, among historians, he finished 16th halfway in the field. So I'm not alone in thinking this guy deserves some merit. I, I'm, again, I'm assuming, uh, I mentioned parenthetically, Dan, I don't know how you're categorized by Dave Meltzer. I'm assuming I'm categorized as a historian, not as a current wrestler for the five times a year I get in the ring still or as, an, or as a former wrestler. So I, I'm assuming that I'm being categorized by him as a historian. I would accept that. Uh, I'd view that as an accolade. And I would accept it. And again, when I look at the ballot and he finished 16th, I'm not alone in thinking that he is a, that, that Ibushi has um, cemented a, a deserving reputation 
uh, as uh, somebody who is deserving of this kind of consideration by virtue of uh, of the the attraction he he has become and the how it's not just that he's wrestled a lot of different guys and drawn big houses. The matches have been excellent. Dan, I want to get your thoughts on this, but I'll just say from my point of view, I actually lump him in with Kenny Omega in that I think it's too soon. I think there well, should be more time. I mean, you said that, you know, there's still time for Kenny Omega. I look at them, uh, Kota Ibushi and Kenny Omega and a few other guys, and I say to myself, they're too young. They still have a lot of career left. It's too early to vote for them. But, Dan, let me get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I fall into that same category. Uh, first of all, I will be the first one to admit that I won't sit behind in my Japanese wrestling. Uh, I, I, need, I keep needing to get caught up on stuff. I have not had the time to do it. Um, but I do feel very strongly about voting for people that are, that, like you said, are still young or still active in the business. Um, I voted, like I said, I voted for Edge. And then right after that, uh, one of the things I heard was there was a rumor that he might get back into the ring again. And that kind of made me take a sharp intake of breath because I, I, I feel very strongly about I, I like to vote and be able to look at a whole career and not. I mean, there was that situation with Kurt Angle several years ago. I mean, Kurt Angle started off as this, this moose. I mean, it, it, people loved him. He was doing all this great stuff. And then he had some rough years there. And it made you stop and take a look at it and go, you know, how's this going to all work itself out? And luckily, it kind of came around to where it, it came full circle and it was okay. But I do think that uh, for a lot of those guys, it's way too young, uh, way too young to t- be taking a look at them, like with, with Omega and, and uh, Abushi and all those guys. Uh, I would rather wait until I see some sort of like uh, finish line coming up for some of these guys. Yeah, I think that's a fair way of looking at it. I, uh, Ibushi, I, 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 I can see what you're saying, and uh, and I, I sort of made the same judgment myself. But in this case, again, because of the how how great the matches have been, uh, I thought that this was a place I could put a ballot and you know not have to not not feel like I was uh, stretching things too much. Let's talk briefly because I, before we run out of time, I do want to hit on Mexico. I have abstained for the last several years. I thought the ballot was too crowded, and I thought something had to break to free things up, and it looks like it may have happened a little bit this year, but you guys both voted for the exact same candidates Oh wow! for Mexico. Los Brazos, the Death Missionaries, and Carlo Fagarde. Let's go into your decision-making process. Dan, let me go to you, the Southern California guy. Why did you vote for these three candidates? Or it's more than three, but three, including the faction, as one. Well, we talked about before um, about marriage partners, and the Brazos were the perfect uh, marriage partners for the missionaries originally at one point. And I think for a lot of people who may not be familiar, and again, unfortunately, there's not a lot of video out there on the missionaries. Um, these guys are not, you know, you're you're pretty um, jumping around, flipping, uh, you know, diving, which um, Libra guys. These guys are ass kickers. Uh, these guys are are deadly, uh, I think. And, um, you know, you, you have, I, I, I believe, am I correct? I think, um, is it, uh, Necro, is it Necro, Necro Navarro is still wrestling to some extent. Yep. Uh, I saw a picture of him the day. He looks like a, a potato in a singlet. I mean, he really does. He, he looks scary. I wouldn't want to mess with this guy at all. And when you look at how they took and revolutionized uh, tag team wrestling and made it into six man wrestling. 
and worked with the Brazos so that they were then perfectly married together. And then they were they were wrestling Santo and and, and Glory Guerrero and all those guys. Um, you know, I, I think that that that's something, and you can feel it. The last couple of years, I I felt very, very strongly, at, and the Death Missionaries were my very first. Uh, selection, I mean, like a sure thing on the ballot, uh, that this was going to happen this year. Uh, and I'm happy to see that. Uh, and I know of several other friends uh, who were very happy. I started getting texts on Thursday night, uh, mm-hmm. people who were so excited that the guys got in. Um, uh, Karloff is, a, is an interesting situation. He's kind of like the last of, of the old school um, Lucha Libre movie making uh, wrestlers, and and he was somebody again. Um, unless you you're like uh, Alfredo Esparza or somebody who is is a real old school person who knows the Lucha Libre, he's a guy that's going to be lost in the ozone too to some extent. Um, and I but I but Kurt Brown was the guy that sold me on him. I didn't know that much about him, and I started doing some research on him because Kurt talked about him so much. Um, so, I mean, to those four guys, I felt like Lucha Libre was something I've been following for 30 years. And, um, you know, I'd seen the Browns on, on many different occasions. I, I've seen them do comedy. I've seen them be Rudos. I've seen them do, uh, you know, Technico stuff. I, I've seen Super Porky have 15 heart attacks. I mean, I've seen all these yeah. things happen over the years. And uh, it, I just felt like, these four people, I, I wanted to vote, like you said, and kind of break up the log jam to some extent. I felt like we could, if we could get these guys in there or get at least get them moving, uh, then we can look at um, at other wrestlers. And I do think that guys like Nick Monroe have a much better chance next year at this point. Brian, I uh, I've been voting for uh, both the Death Missionaries and uh, Karloff since 2014 when i take a look back at it consistently uh, i understand what you're saying about the the log jam I mean, there's one ballot where there's you know san caris and blue panther were also eligible or have been eligible and it, it it's it's almost like mexico almost needed its own you know a separate ballot just to be able to get in some of these guys and, and i agree that this uh, hopefully that this will break up the the log jam a little bit uh uh in terms of that they when i broke into the business uh, they were already uh, legendary. Uh, I remember being familiar with them before I got into wrestling, which and there weren't a lot of Mexican things from the Mexican wrestling scene that we would be familiar with. But the emergence of the six-man tag, uh, the six-man tags, the prominence of it, uh, and of that team and the program with the Brazos already by 80 whatever I, I got into the business more or less full time was 82. Uh, they were already not just well-known, but very highly regarded. Uh, and again, the, the, the significance is, uh, you know, drawing power, range of opponents. Uh, and uh, even through 86 against teams that were, you know, Tony Salazar and some opponents that were, uh, you know, not exactly Hall of Famers. And they were still having these tremendous feuds uh, and, and uh, all over the big arenas in Mexico. And to me, they've been deserving of recognition for, for, for well over five years. Uh, uh, Lagarde, again, uh, as Dan has said, he's, um, you know, he is a tail end of, uh, of that older generation and, and clearly uh, deserving of induction because he was a cultural icon in Mexico, uh, achieved that, uh, th- that level of, of, uh, of, fame and accomplishment um and i'm i am also very happy that he is now inducted uh it's uh it's again he's like a a, an an old-time guy that was such a strong 
uh, draw as a heel, as a foil for the for the Mexican baby faces. Um, Actually, he wasn't inducted. Lagarde has not gotten oh, into the Hall of Fame. Oh, sorry, my mistake. Yeah, I'm looking at the wrong list here. He just missed. Uh, I, he he he's deserving of induction, as I said. He should get in. Uh, <laughs> I see. He's, I see. He's you know he's not that far off. Actually, he's a, he's sitting I think 12th this year or something. So he's not that not that far off. But this is a guy that that I voted for, as I said consistently, and will continue to vote for. And he's again from that era. So many of these guys now. There's an example. I don't know if I've ever seen any of his stuff on tape. Come to think of it. Yeah, a, I, I a solo match or something. I don't remember seeing one. But uh, when I'll tell you, when I went down to Mexico and when I go down there first, 1990, 91, uh, he was one of the names who was brought up just in talking with uh, some of the boys about uh, who the legends were and the the, tra- the trainers or whatever. That would have been what? Uh, Victor Marr, right? Black Cat. And mm-hmm. uh, the, these legendary Wolf Ravinsky, I remember hearing about. And yeah. Lagarde was one of those names that was was talked about with, with great reverence. I think he was being psychic, Marty. Next year, I think I think he has a really good shot of coming in finally. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm hoping so because it's 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 nice to see guys like that get you know get their due and get put you know get get put in the into that into the into a um, into a circumstance where their name is seen attached to people that to, to wrestlers where people more obviously recognize that they're great stars and recognize that they're trailblazers. Yeah. Well, guys, before we wrap up, a couple of names I quickly want to ask you about before I get your closing thoughts. One name that you voted for, Marty, that I think is an important historian, as much as he even worked in the office, because he has certainly done so much when he was alive to spread the tale of what really happened in St. Louis. You voted for Larry Matisic. Why did you vote for Larry Matisic? <laughs> I, was, I was friends with Larry. He... uh he was an example of somebody that gave so much to this business uh, without, without – and he never asked for anything. You know, he, he got in uh, the most honest way possible uh, because, uh, because the, the promoter recognized that this was an honest human being with, uh, who, who, who would fit in with the operation in terms of being a, a sports-oriented um, Larry, I think, in terms of his ability at play-by-play for what he was doing in St. Louis has, has been understated and underrated. He came up to Canada. He went up to the EWA in, I think, the summer of 82, and I don't remember what happened if Gene Oakland or, or whoever was like taking a vacation. And he did play-by-play on on one taping in, of the house show in Minneapolis or St. Paul and came up in, to Winnipeg, and he did play-by-play. And it was uh, something they hadn't done in Winnipeg before, a night of tags. Like, the opener was... Heenan and Goulet, Sergeant Jacques Goulet, against like Brad Rangins and Buck Zumhoff. And Larry Matisic made that match sound like it was a main event in Madison Square Garden. And the actual main event, which was the High Flyers against Bravo and Martel, they did an amazing series that summer, was off the charts. So, you know, Larry understood how to get the product across. His historical recollection and the other interviews that he's done, uh, uh, you know, it's a great service to our community uh, by being able to do it. And and I don't know that Muchnik would have had the success he had if he had not had a lieutenant like like Larry around who was able to keep an eye on things, keep things calm with the boys, understand what was going on, knew how to handle media, etc. And I'm, 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 you know, one memory I have of Larry, it's a personal thing, was in 2007, I was doing a daily radio show here in Winnipeg. And it was the anniversary of Bruiser Brody's death. And I went to my station manager and said, look, 
uh, you know, normally I'm doing local stories, political stories, and the odd sports thing at a lot of leeway. And I said, I want to do a whole hour about about Bruiser Brody, who is a, a friend of my tag partner, is a friend of Dan Denton's. And Larry came on, not knowing me from a hole in the ground, came on from St. Louis, and we did a whole hour, which mystified, I'm sure, a lot of the listeners in Winnipeg. But to me, I should dig that disc up, actually, come to think of it, Brian, and yeah. get it to you. Because I'm pretty it. sure... I'm pretty sure I've got it, and he was magnificent, he, just a mag- magnificent historian, magnificent human being, and and so generous with all of us, uh, and uh, and in that regard, you know, look for a lot of us, um, I don't know so much necessarily for Dan. Uh, specifically, he's like you know, Dan wasn't friends with Chavo, but grew up on him and and saw the greatness of Chavo. That was only you know a glimmer was allowed to be shown in New York or San Antonio or some of the other territories he was in. Uh, but we have some personal bias sometimes towards people we know that 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 we hold them in a higher esteem because of of the way they treated us and that uh, Larry uh, Larry was a, a saint. He's a uh, and and the business is much poorer for his loss. He had a lot more to contribute um, to contribute, even with his physical maladies. A lot more to contribute to uh, to the industry and to the gathering of history and the understanding of, you know, history is also booking, and uh, history is also you know who who missed a show and why and how you had a book around it. And uh, Larry is a, 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 a not just an encyclopedia, but he was a thesaurus. Uh, of of knowledge for the industry and uh, and as I as I've indicated much missed by those of us that that were fortunate enough to have met him and to have benefited from his knowledge and you know sometimes when yeah. you have this much data in front of you you make mistakes I said you voted for Larry actually Dan you voted for Larry Matisic so let me get your yeah. thoughts on Larry and what Marty just said but also you both voted for James Melby Jim Melby he was for a long time the Lieutenant, I guess, the Norm Keitzer, and of course, yeah. one of wrestling's top historians. So, Dan, your thoughts on Larry Matisic, and then from there, tell me why you voted for Jim Melby, and then Marty, let me know what you think after Dan says that. Yeah, I I never met Larry at all, but I read his books, I heard countless interviews with him, um, and I, having never even met him, I agree with everything. Uh, that Marty says. I mean, the guy was just pure class, up and down. Uh, he knew more. Uh, than most people do uh, about the business. And you could sometimes even read between the lines and, and see stuff that he was alluding to or whatever. Uh, I just thought he had one of the best wrestling minds that um, that, that I had ever heard. And uh, I wish I could have met him at one point or another because he, he just seems like a great guy. Um, with Jim Melby, um, when I first started reading the wrestling magazines back in the early 70s and, and ring wrestling or whatever, I mean, he was one of the first guys... Uh, that you could read that you really felt you learned something from his stuff because he was that historian at heart. And uh, there, there, it wasn't stories about, oh, Abdul the Butcher and Dominic DiNucci got into a fist fight at a, at a cocktail party uh, or something like that. It was real honest to God stuff that you, and I know that as a wrestling fan early on, um, you know, you thirst for, for real information, for for information that, that, that always that lets you makes you understand why you like professional wrestling, why you love professional wrestling. And uh, I always felt from everything I ever read that Jim Melby loved professional wrestling. 
Melby was to me exactly the kind of guy you wanted writing about the business at least again from when I broke in I broke into the business because I was a sports uh, sportscaster aspiring sports writer uh, and and that whole style of you know taking the athleticism seriously and being able to write around the theatrics was very important because uh, to me that was the tone that needed to be struck um, to maintain the fan base and to grow the fan base um, and Jim Melby uh, I, there, you know, honest to God, there's another guy you've never heard a bad word about him. Fought, I think he had diabetes very bad for a number of years. I think was was what his deal was, and he respected the sport. And he respected the athletes. Uh, he was very look. He's not just um, you know what he did uh, for the AW in regards to the AWA, but if I'm remembering correctly, he also edited the uh, the programs uh, that were distributed to uh, to the other territories. Uh, I'm surprised that among historians that Melby finished 30th. I, that did yeah. surprise me. It could be, you know, Dan, that they that that uh, the feeling is that it's, you know, maybe not. I don't want to say a little early for him, uh, but the, there is so much stuff loaded at the top with historians this time around. Uh, you know, of the top of the top uh, ten vote getters among historians. I'm looking here. I guess it's four win in, five five went in. So historians did pretty well this yeah. year. In the course of that, there just wasn't room on the historians' ballot maybe for Melby when in other years there will be. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, as we close out this segment, and I want to thank you both for being here. You're invited back for next year's edition of the pro- of this uh, broadcast. But <laughs> what do you think could be done to improve the Hall of Fame? Do you think there are any issues with the way the voting is done? And specifically, one of the things I'm concerned with, you know, I've petitioned to have while Bull Curry put on the ballot. I petitioned to have Mara Siegel put on the ballot. I think Roy Welch should be put on the ballot. There are other guys, and you see a situation like this year where Paul Pons was put in as an overlooked historical figure. Because these guys are from the United States, I feel like a lot of the, you know, the last one I remember was um, Martin Kardashian from Titanic's mm-hmm. NL Ring, mm-hmm. who was put in very similar fashion, not on the ballot, not inducted as a, someone voted in, but as an overlooked historical figure, when it comes to someone like Morris Siegel, who died in, off the top of my head, I think maybe 68, but promoted yeah. for almost 50 years, when it comes to someone like Roy Welch, who had as much territory under him as anyone ever had during the territory days, when it comes to Wild Bull Curry, who was a major drawing card and someone who was wrestling a style that other guys didn't wrestle in various places, do you think they deserve to be on the ballot? They should be on the ballot? Or do you think? There should be more guys who probably should have been in that first class that are put into the Hall of Fame as overlooked historical figures. But comment on that and any issues you see with the ballot going forward. Dan, this is your first year of voting. Let me start with you. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I looked at uh, very closely when I was trying to be analytical about this was – um, the one thing that anybody who talks to the old school guys will tell you, the thing that they're most proud of more than anything else in the world is not how great their matches were, but how they drew money. And um, in the beginning, I think when the Observer was set up this way, it, the whole idea was how what did they draw as being something very big uh, in, in the voting. But I think as the business begins to change and more and more, we have to take a look at that. One of the people who was on my ballot that uh, was on there for a while. I took her off was June Byers because I felt for my first ballot this time, I wanted to go with certain people that I felt very strongly about. 
but the thing is, June Byers was was obviously a woman wrestler, and they weren't in territories. They were special attractions. So how can you really judge a special attraction as opposed to someone who's in a territory? Because that's the whole idea. You want to be in as many territories as possible. But women were only in the territory for a couple of weeks, and then they moved on in most cases. Um, so, I mean, that's one of those things that I think that there are special considerations you need to take uh, into consideration. And uh, again, as the business changes now, uh, it's not so much about physically putting butts in the seat as it is electronically putting butts in the seat. Uh, so I do think that we need to kind of take a look at, at how we, we judge this, and maybe we need to make make some changes. I'm not exactly sure what, uh, but make some changes that we can open this up for some people that maybe aren't getting the, you know, getting the publicity on this that they should. Uh, I'm inclined to agree, Dan. You know, I'm, in reviewing my ballot and I look at the the overall results, and I voted for uh, eight of the top sixteen. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty proud of myself that I'm in yeah. tune with uh, with whatever universe Dave has created uh, among the balloteers. And again, I'm assuming I've been been categorized as a historian and not to, in one of the other categories. Um, I think that one weakness is that it's taken a lot of research by people, and I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, throw some compliments out towards, say, Matt Farmer, uh, where mm-hmm. guys have taken the, the, the time to research gates uh, over, over you know, extended periods of time. Uh, and this has assisted us, much like what they're doing nowadays. Again, I, I hearken back to baseball, uh, where they're starting to, to hyperanalyze some of the statistics and giving us a better sense, aside of, of you know, our gut instinct or, oh, my Zeta told me, you know, we're able to now measure, have some measurements. And then, you know, you have to you know, look, think through it. Okay, uh, uh, some areas of the country, maybe a promoter, uh, the business collapsed because of the oil crisis, right? Stuff like that. You have to start figuring out a little bit, you know, why numbers went down or whatever. I'm wondering if, in fact, what is required is the non-performers, I guess is how Dave uh, puts it, or non-wrestlers, if that has to be refined a little bit so that you have um, promoters say, I'm just going to throw a, a number in the air, say pre-1985 in terms of the territorial era or pre-1990. Promoters maybe should be a separate category. Uh, and then you can lump in announcers with whatever other and managers together. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that yeah. would, I think be fair to the, to the Siegel that Brian, you made a very good point about, about Morris Siegel. Uh, I, I look, I voted for Don Owen, uh, who is still just short of the threshold now. And I've been voting consistently among the non wrestlers. And I, again, I'll just take a, a fast, uh, a fast check. Non-wrestlers, 2014, among others, Crockett Sr., Owen, Stanley Weston. 20, 2017, the same story, Crockett Sr., Owen, and Weston. I've been voting consistently for for these guys, and, like, how is it that Don Owen, yeah, it's like at least three of my ballots have had those three guys on it. Uh, and, and now Don Owen we see knocking at the door. Now, I want to mention that, you know, the flip side of research and – uh, getting more data collected and being able to, you know, um, have a reasonable, make reasoned judgments and evaluations uh, comparing one to the other. I don't know how Don Owen would necessarily compare to Siegel. Probably, honestly, not great in terms of the, the longevity, the size of the gates, the stars that were developed, etc. Uh, but, you know, other things come up. I, I read 
I guess it was last night that apparently in Dean Silverstone's book, Dean had some not very complimentary things to say about Don Owen. And it's the first I've ever heard anybody suggest that Don Owen was an anti-Semite. Yeah, me too. I, I read yeah, the same okay. thing, and, and I was that was the first I had heard of that too. You hadn't heard it at all either, eh? So, And I knew some guys that went through the Portland Territory, but honestly, if, you know, stuff like that, for, and it's I'm not telling everybody how they should vote based on what they hear about whether a guy was in the clan or this or that, but, like, I know for me it's like, what? I don't know that I had been so fast to, you know, to, to, to be a Don Owens supporter in the same way, to the same degree. And so the, along with the positive statistics, you know, percentage of sellouts or per capita draw, listen, if you're going to start judging things on the basis of, uh, you know, great promoters and, and a per capita draw, I hate to tell you, but then Al Tomko would have to be in the discussion for Hall of Fame because Winnipeg was the best per capita draw in North America in 75, 6, 7. It was like ridiculous up here trying uh, like I think there was 12 AWA shows at the Winnipeg Arena and like seven of them were over 10,000 people. Winnipeg was about 450,000 people at the time. Now the flip side is you look at the rest of Tomko's career and you go, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but it's you know me- evaluating these metrics and then there's the personal feelings that we carry uh towards our knowledge or what we come to understand about what guys were like in the ring, out of the ring, towards opponents, towards fans. Um, it, 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 it becomes a, a more complex balancing act. I think that to simplify it, to isolate promoters from non-wrestlers, I think would be vi- not just very helpful, but I think it would be, and Dan, I'm interested in, in, in your opinion on this, I think it would be the right thing to do to make sure that the promoters get their due because they were the ones that were taking the risk of profit and loss. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you on that exactly. I mean, I had Morty Siegel down on my ballot. I had Don Owen on my ballot also. Um, you know, Siegel, Siegel, to me, Siegel was the blueprint of Texas wrestling. I mean, uh, you know, Paul Bosch uh, and, and, and Fritz von Erich and those guys, you know, I mean, Siegel made it happen there originally and set up the template to some extent. And uh, most people have no idea who he is unless you set it up. And I think that the idea of doing a separate category that way is probably uh, we're going to need to compartmentalize a lot of stuff uh, more mm-hmm. so than we used to. I think we need to really break things down into different areas. And uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that don't quite fit into that square hole. They're more of a round peg type deal. Dan, do you agree that maybe there should be a separate category then for tag teams? Yeah, yeah I think so too. I think, I think basically, you know, it's always when people start talking all the time about, Oh, you know, who are the greatest of all time? I always say, I can't do that. I can break it down who I think are the greatest of the 1940s or the greatest of the 1970s, but I can't do all time because things change all the time in wrestling. And, uh, and I believe that, yeah, tag, I think it's a good idea to it'd be a great idea to do tag, tag teams. I'm not saying you need to pick, you know, like, oh, we need to have a woman wrestler in this year. Or we need to have this, we need to have that. But I think you need to have options where people can take a look at, at historical figures and, um, and and judge them, but not in the, the hardcore uh, uh, rules that Dave has set up in that situation. But, you know, that's a great question. Before we wrap things up, let's talk a little bit about that because Ricky Steamboat is in the Hall of Fame, as he should be. Jay mm-hmm. Youngblood isn't, and more than likely as a singles wrestler, he shouldn't be. But I think there's an argument to be made that Steamboat and Youngblood should be in the Hall of Fame as a tag team, despite the fact that Ricky Steamboat's already in there. 
I think mm-hmm. you look at Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson, who are on the ballot with J.J. Dillon, although it's a relatively short period of time, two years. And one of those years is without J.J. Dillon. It's with Bobby Heenan. So yeah. how, do you, how do you equate that? How do you measure that versus everything else? Meanwhile, the Steiners aren't on the ballot. And I think as far as great tag teams go, who is a better tag team in wrestling between 1989 and 1994 than the Steiner brothers? A very short list of who was better than him. And Terry Gordy is in as a member of the Freebirds. Terry Gordy isn't in as a singles wrestler. He isn't in as a tag team with Dr. Death Steve Williams. He's in as a member of the Freebirds. Dr. Death Steve Williams is in, and he's not in as a member of a tag team with Terry Gordy. So I think there probably should be a separate category for tag teams slash factions where guys who are already inducted or possibly could be inducted in the future as a singles wrestler, but also had a, an important enough contribution as part of a tag team that the tag team itself as a unit needs to be acknowledged. I think there needs to be something for that. Marty, what do you think? I mean, you're the one who just well, brought this up. Uh, a, a rare moment of genius, I guess, on my part. I, I'll tell you that from the <laughs> AWA territory, the best example I can I can give you right now is Hennigan Race. Larry Hennig is a singles competitor, uh, and and again, people have to remember, you know, not every wrestler wanted a title. They're raising a family; they don't want to have to worry about traveling, uh, you know, all sorts of different reasons. Uh, and so, the, some wrestlers did not want to be in the position of having to, you know, carry the carry the load uh, of being put on top for any length of time. But Hennig and Race is a tag team from, I guess they started ta- teaming maybe in late 64, early 65. When I started following the AWA was when Hennig had uh, uh, kayfabe broken his leg uh, at the hands of, of, of Vern Gagne. And when... I mean, there was great anticipation among all my schoolmates as I was learning who the Crusher was and 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 who Rene Goulet was and and the Vachans. There was great anticipation about Hennig coming back and and teaming with Race again. People expected that they were going to win the tag team titles, and there's absolutely no video of them whatsoever from their AWA time. And they were in the first live main event I saw against uh, Cowboy Bill Watts and his uh, chosen partner, unfortunately, was the mighty Igor. Nothing against him, but it could have been a better match. A uh, uh, bloodbath, mind you. And uh, they were an incredible tag team. I'll give you an example of another tag team that's the babyface equivalent, perhaps, of the example you've just given, Brian, of Blanchard and Anderson, who I personally like, but over the course of two years, it's hard for me to argue them into a as a Hall of Fame level, but if you're going to have, you know, a flash of, of greatness across the sky for a limited period of time, Red Bastine and Red Lions. There are mm. people to this day will tell you they never saw a better babyface tag team, and that, I think, is a good comparison to, to uh, Steamboat and Youngblood, uh, a, a tag team that they had it all, and they were ridiculously um, uh, uh, adored by AWA crowds. I think Hennigan race is the, is the best argument, at least from, you know, this territory up here in the, in the frozen North of why a tag team division would give just recognition, uh, to, uh, to a team where one guy went on to become, you know, a single superstar and, a and, a, and, uh, 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 you know, a, a, a gatekeeper to greatness. If you beat race, then you are obviously going to be a great, uh, but, you know, his tag team career is overlooked and it's, uh, with, with Hennig, and it shouldn't be. And Hennig was a tremendous 
a tremendous tag team wrestler. And that would be, uh, I think, a, a good comparison and justification for opening up a tag team uh, recognition for a tag team category. You know, I voted for Akira Tawi this year, and this is the first year I voted for him. I've been hesitant to. And I specifically did because of those tag team matches. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it should be Akira Tawi and Toshiaki Kawada as a unit, even though Kawada's already in. Yeah. But that's a Hall yeah, of Fame think- tag team. So no, you, th- yeah. So I mean, I think you're making a good point there, Brian, and it's an it's an important point too. Um, you know the the, the uh, tag team wrestling at its best is an art form, and there's a lot of times you can throw a tag team together, but that chemistry, that magic that happens when you put the two ingredients together, uh, that's what we're talking about with the Hennigan race, uh, with the Steamboat and Youngblood, with Lions and Bastine, for instance, and and. Tawi was, you know, he. I'm. I I agree with you. I am uncomfortable that it doesn't appear that there's a path for him to get the recognition he deserves, because you got a stuffed ballot, and here's a guy whose talents were spread out, helping so many others look and be great. Dan, any thoughts on the tag teams? And I guess I could throw another one out there: Anthony Naraka and Miguel Perez. Raka, clear yeah. Hall of Famer. He's in the Hall of Fame. They were a Hall of Fame tag team, but Miguel Perez will never get the support and more than likely shouldn't as a singles wrestler. However, what they did as a unit should be looked at differently than what Raka did as a single, I believe. But Dan, your thoughts before we wrap yeah. things up about tag teams. But, you know, I feel the same way deal with the Hollywood Walk of Fame out here. Now, granted, it's not a, a Hall of Fame, uh, it, it's, it's a, a commercial situation. But when there are several people who have four or five stars on the Walk of Fame, <clears throat> excuse me, because it covers different areas. Some, some are there for radio, some are for films, television, because all that different work is different. I mean, there's a, there's different way, criteria to judge that. And I believe the same thing you're talking about, like I said, Red Bistian and Billy Red Lions is a great example of that. Uh, even somebody like Nelson Royal and Paul Jones, which you know were a wonderfully functioning tag team, uh, guys like the Infernos or uh, the Hollywood Blondes. I mean, they're not going to get in separately, but they should be recognized. They should be looked at, and I, I think it's a great idea. I, I hope somebody can fall through with it because I think uh, we need to look at tag team wrestling as a very different uh, portion of the sport. Well, if we can get that through, we'll call it the Goldstein Amendment to the uh, Hall of Fame. But, guys, before we wrap up, one last thing. Next year, added to the ballot, Ole Anderson, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Brian Pillman, Joe Higuchi, and uh, I may pronounce this one wrong, Takaiki Kidani. Any of those names that you think will be on your ballots? None of those jump out at me as supplanting any other names that, uh, granted, you know, names I voted for that got in this time, so I will have some open space, so to speak, but I don't see Scott Hall. These are all great guys, okay? <laughs> but I don't see Scott Hall's career as being Hall of Fame level. I don't see Kevin Nash's as being Hall of Fame level, for two examples. Uh, Ole, there'd be some consideration, but uh, I don't think he... I'm not sure. Again, the Anderson brothers, yes. Only Anderson, no. But there's an example for you. The Anderson brothers, they left the ballot. They didn't get the support, so now Ole is back on the ballot as a singular figure. 
someone who was a wrestler, a booker, and a promoter. So there's a good example back to the tag teams, but yep. now he's on for a completely... Because previously, if you wanted to look at Ole's career and say, hey, this guy was at one point a fantastic booker, this guy did have great success, this guy was working two territories at the same time, you had to do it and Gene Anderson would get lumped in with that. So I think you know that again goes to the argument of there should be a singles category and a tag team category, but uh, Dan, your thoughts about any of the names added next year? Uh, much like Mark is saying, there's nothing that jumps out at me. I think what I would have to take a look at is that the people that I narrowly didn't put on my ballot this year are, are going to get first shot at it next year. And after, after I go through and see uh, who's left over, what spaces are left over after that, I might be, like I said, always an interesting choice. Uh, that's the only person out there who jumps out at me right away. Uh, and, and always not so much for being a wrestler, but for what he did behind the scenes. I just have one other suggestion, Brian, since we're in the middle of booking for uh, for Dave Meltzer, then maybe <laughs> also, parenthetically, um, the time has come uh, to, to look at a specific category for women performers. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that when Dan brought up June Byers earlier. That and was, I voted for her a few years ago. Yeah, that was actually the thought I had, especially we're now getting to the point where you're going to have an entire generation of women wrestlers that it's been long enough that they'll be eligible or they wrestled long enough that they'll be eligible from the past 20 years when in America, especially there was a flood of women getting into wrestling mixed mm-hmm. results. Some of them were just models that were put in a ring, but we also saw some supremely talented female wrestlers. I think you may be right. I think we may be ready for a tag team category and a female wrestling category. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially since like we talk about now the the whole I hate to use that word evolution, the evolution where women are not so much attractions anymore. They're staying in one area, and they're staying in in, in one group of this these days. Um, I think we it would help, especially because also I believe in women's wrestling in the forties and fifties. There are a lot of pioneers that really need to have someone take a, a second look at them. A lot of the African American women wrestlers. I mean, that went through a, a, a whole beat the Babs window and people like yeah. that. I would like to see something like that open up for them because, uh, you know, it, it, they really did. They really are pioneers. They're really and truly are pioneers. And because of the way that they were handled at, at that time, it's kind of hard for them to get a break. And I, I would like to see that open up. I think that's well said, Dan. And then, and, and then once we've convinced Meltzer to, to, you know, subdivide this, then, Brian, we can get to work on the Jewish Wrestling Hall of Fame. <laughs> well, I, I must admit, I did vote for Bill Goldberg uh, this year. You did. I did. <laughs> I, I think that he was too big a star and was too big of a draw, whether it's a ratings draw or you look at that big house he drew with Hogan. And I think his comeback actually helped his candidacy, at least in my Oh, eyes. I agree. And I agree. And again, yeah. I just, I think, see, one of the things that doesn't affect me when I look at it is, is time period as much as other people. I think JYD is a hall of famer. That's based off a five-year period. Sayama's yeah. in the hall of fame. That's based off a two-year period. Goldberg to me reached a level that very few ever hit in this industry. And it was for, you could say it wasn't a long period of time. I would say a year, two years is a sustainable period of time, especially during that era. How do you say that a guy got to be that big in that era 
where people were still chanting his name at shows. I mean, people weren't chanting the Ultimate Warrior's name at shows. <laughs> That's for sure. After that, but they were chanting for Goldberg at shows for 20 years after he last wrestled, you know, before his comeback, or I don't have the exact timeline in front of me. I look at Bill Goldberg, and I think, I look at star power. I think there is something to be said for crossing over to mainstream. There is something to be said for star magnitude. That's why I think Sergeant Slaughter is a Hall of Famer, not just because he was a great wrestler, not just because he was a great promo, not just because of the alley fight and then the boot camp match, and not just because of the Slaughter and Kernodal versus Steamboat and Youngblood feud, which was one of the biggest in the history of Mid-Atlantic wrestling and one that led to a lot of things happening after that, like Starcade. But I also think he was Sergeant Slaughter on G.I. Joe. And to a whole generation of kids who didn't watch wrestling, they knew who Sergeant Slaughter was. They knew Sergeant Slaughter is a professional wrestler. And then after that, he comes back and he has the world title run. And he, of course, had gained weight. He wasn't the same wrestler he had been years earlier. But I think I look at he had enough of a period of time at a certain level. And he also crossed over to mainstream America in one form or another. So with that said, for why I picked JYD and Sergeant Slaughter, that's also why I picked Bill Goldberg. I think Bill Goldberg became widely known to non-wrestling fans. And it wasn't for being a shitty wrestler. And it wasn't just for being used in a certain position. He was the right guy, used the right way at the right time. And it worked. He actually was someone that people tuned in to see. That people came to those arenas and couldn't wait to see it. WCW fucked him up. Yep. But it wasn't his fault. And the, no, he didn't do anything wrong. He and, kept showing up for work. Is probably the worst thing he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's my argument for Bill Goldberg, and that's my argument for someone like Sergeant Slaughter or the Junkyard Dog. Is that well, I? Well, we are getting. Yeah. Go, well, go ahead. Sorry, we are getting to the point. Like we're getting to the point, like you said, where we take the traditional rules and we have to kind of start thinking outside the box because there are some things that need to be applied that aren't just a simple cut and dry type stuff. And, and Goldberg, you make a very good argument for Bill Goldberg. And that uh, if I heard somebody say that to me next year or whatever, I might, I, I will reconsider that to this point because of that, but that's thinking outside the box. That's not, do you follow the rules of the way that the hall of fame is set up? Uh, he's not going to qualify, but if you look at that, that extra intangible uh, stuff to it, you're going to have to really take a really good, hard look at it. See, I look at maximum impact. If Satoru Sayama is in the Hall of Fame for a two-year period of time, and by the way, I think he should be. I'm not saying I think Tiger Mask shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. I think he absolutely needs to be. But it's for maximum impact. In that two-year period of time, he was wrestling a different style than anyone had ever seen before. He was certainly having great matches. He got to be a big star. He came to America. And his work there influenced every single thing that came after it. That's the maximum impact for Tiger Mask. Bill Goldberg had maximum impact for two years. And if Tiger Mask Mm -hmm. could be in for two years, to me, anyone could be in for two years. If for two years period of time, something happens where there's maximum impact, where they either change wrestling for the future, like Tiger Mask did, or where they become a big enough star that people all over the world know who they are, even if they're not a wrestling fan. And they move numbers. That's why I think JYD is a Hall of Famer, because JYD was that guy from 1979 to 1985, at a minimum. Does that mean that, you, uh, that you're going to, at some point, vote for Big Daddy? 
I did vote for Big Daddy, actually. <laughs> well, okay, then. You answered the question. I did vote for Big Daddy. And again, someone – see, that, that's where you get a lot of the divide. The guys who work for Big Daddy or for his brother, they'll say, you know, oh, Crabtree's fat brother. Yep. But it's the fans who grew up in England. That, listen to them. Listen to their arguments. And Alan Blackstock's going to be on this show, and I'm sure he'll gladly give his argument. But if you grew up in England, the idea that Big Daddy's not in a Hall of Fame is, is ridiculous. It's just completely ridiculous. And I understand he was horrible in the ring. He was really bad in the ring. But he also had his own comic book. <laughs> he was also on a giant <laughs> billboard. I mean, the Queen knew, <laughs> knew who Big Daddy was. So I think you, you do have to weigh certain things where it can't just be about work rate and it can't just yeah. be about, you can't say, oh, he didn't draw big houses if he was never in a position to draw big houses. Dan, do you know, Dan, do you know the definition that Hulk Hogan had of the best wrestler? No. The, Hulk Hogan's definition was the wrestler makes the most money traveling least number of miles. And so what we have here is uh, <laughs> based on Brian's conversation, you know, there's this, there's this scope here. And at one end of the scope is Hogan's definition, which is literally, you know, I think it translates to impact, Brian, uh, as, as much as it translates to anything else. Yeah. There's impact on the one end, and then there's the, the qualities that guys uh, like us also consider and look at, some of us more than others, in terms of the range of opponents, the longevity, the sustained drawing power, the ability to work both heel and face – Etc. Etc. So I'd, I've never been crazy about Hogan's definition, but when people ask me and I tell them that's Hogan's definition, they reflect on it for a second and they go, "Are you sure?" I said, "Well, that's what he says." <laughs> and to, to most of us, uh, Brian and and and, and Dan and, and guys like me, it's a little bit more nuanced than just impact. But I, Brian, I very much respect the the argument that you're bringing forward about Slaughter, who I I know uh, even here in Canada. Um, a while ago, somebody found a little figurine. I have no idea what kind it was from. It was probably from a G.I. Joe set. And they brought it to me and said, look what I found in the store. It's Sergeant Slaughter. I take a look and it's some little Sergeant Slaughter. They want me to, you know, have in my, put in my car. So the Sarge is always riding with me and stuff. So, so you're right. So you're right. Sarge, Sarge had a, had a certain kind of cultural impact. And when you look at it, there are very few wrestlers, uh, from the eighties, nineties and two thousands that have had that kind of an impact. You know, you're looking at Hogan, Savage, Slaughter, a Warrior a little bit, and in Canada, Bret Hart, who sort of, you know, cro- and Austin and The Rock, obviously, that, you know, cross that divide into it. You know, Killer Kowalski, when I was a kid, everybody knew that name, and it's not because they saw him wrestle. He was famous. Right. Right? Yeah. Like Yukon Eric, and again, this is from when I was growing up. So, like, 1964, 65, right around the time he killed himself or shortly thereafter, I knew the name Yukon Eric, and I knew Whipper Watson, who was Canada's first TV star, and and Kaniski because Kaniski was his foil. And I was aware that Quebec had their own thing going on; they had their own Bellevue and Rocket Richard thing going on with wrestling as well. Um, and and uh, I, I'm I'm comfortable. Look, I believe much like in the synagogue nowadays, Brian. There's room for a lot of people in it, but at its core, at its core, everybody has to have a belief in in something. So it can't only be impact and drawing power and, and you know, that, that part of it, uh, again, unless they're like messianic in quality, which Sayama certainly was. Dan, any closing thoughts? 
No, I think I think we, as my mother used to say, I think we've covered the waterfront. I think we we pretty much run run through everything here. Well, guys, this is a great discussion. We're going to have to do it again sometime. I've enjoyed it so much, and Dan, such a pleasure to to be able to to meet you, even if it's uh, transcontinentally through the wires. And <laughs> and, and, and well, Brian, way, I, I find I find it very interesting that uh, that our balance were very similar, and, and we never met each other ever before. That, that that's that's very comforting to some extent. You know, it really is, especially because we look. Uh, you're you're a California guy, Brian's uh, 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 a New York guy. Uh, and, and here I am, here I am, you know, like I'm a seven hour drive North of Minneapolis. And yet we all exhibit the same sensibilities, the same interpretation, the same, essentially the same values when it comes to this. And I've, I find that uh, much like you, Dan, I find it fascinating that we are of such similar minds and we have the same sentiments about a business that we love so much. And then I'm, for, I'm personally fortunate to still be around, uh, you know, every, every, every month or two, I still am able to risk my life getting in the ring. Uh, it, it's, it, and I look, I think this bodes well for future hall of fames. If, if people that listen to this, uh, that, um, that are, are receiving ballots, uh, I hope that this helps them in their own interpretation of where of you know where they should be marking it and what qualities they think they should be valuing, and uh, and and Brian, I think that the coverage that you give this every year is a, again a great service to the wrestling community that it, we have an opportunity to discuss these things uh, in roundtables and, and and you know as the ballots as the nominees come out every year, and whether we're hearing from Alan in England or me in Canada or you guys in the states, uh, or or you know. Fumi from Japan, whatever. I think this is a great thing for for our for our community and for our love of wrestling to be able to maintain it and to grow our love of wrestling. Because this way, we get to educate each other about uh, a guy's a wrestler's history, not necessarily a guy, but a wrestler's history or promoter's history, their value, their impact in the in the market, the, their longevity, their their lasting fame. Uh, I think it's fantastic for for the industry as a whole. Let's continue our look at this year's class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame with two, as I would find out, great friends here on the line today. And we're going to talk all about their ballots and the results. First, let me introduce someone you've heard on this show many, many times. Really one of the, I guess, one of the good spirits in professional wrestling. It's hard to talk to this guy and not have a smile on your face. And that is our friend Roy Lucher. Roy, thanks for being back here on the show. Oh, it's an absolute honor. Thanks for having me back on, especially for something like this that I'm so passionate about. Also with us is a man who I consider the premier historian of Lucha Libre, and he is now finally voting for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, as he should be, and that is Fredo Esparza. Fredo, thanks for being here today. Thanks. Great to be back. And you just mentioned uh, it's hard not to smile when talking to Roy. I am one of the few people who can not smile while talking to Roy. <laughs> wow. Well, it's only downhill from here. But uh, guys, let's talk before we go too far. Let's talk about each of your ballots and then we'll talk about various things from there. Fredo, would you please reveal who you voted for this year for the 2019 class of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Well, for this year, I voted for, well, my ballot was mostly a lot of luchadors because as you go through that list, there were basically like 10 luchadors who, or I don't know how many there were that qualified to be in the Hall of Fame. 
Um, I think I voted for every luchador but Volador Jr. And it wasn't a slight against Volador Jr. just because it's more that he's still active and, you know, I have a thing about, you know, he's still, I think he's still probably in his mid to late 30s, so he still has a little more time to prove himself as far as, you know, being deserving of the Hall of Fame. And, um, but everybody else, honestly, Los Brazos, Caristico, um, Ultimo Guerrero, Carlos Lagarde, Los Misioneros de la Muerte, all three of them, of course, Huracan Ramirez, Viano Tercero, Dr. Wagner Jr., basically that with the whole Mexico list. And then I actually had two more people for um, other categories in um, the modern performers in the U.S. and Canada. I voted for Kerry Von Erich. Uh, I, I was kind of torn in that listing because I was deciding between Kerry Von Erich, the Junkyard Dog, and Sergeant Slaughter, since that's pretty much, you know, they were around around the time I started watching wrestling in the 80s. And um, I think it came down to really, uh, I think between all three of them, it really comes down to what territory or where you were more familiar with them when they were at their peak of their careers. And for me, it was really Kerry Von Erich because I was from Texas at that time. Uh, so I voted for him. And then for Japan, I voted for Akira Tawe, who I thought really deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. Um, he always gets slighted when he's in those big matches with Misawa, Kawada, and Akiyama, and Kobashi. Um, everybody that he's involved in. And I think he's awesome. He was great. And, you know, I, I had to throw a vote for him. And then for non-wrestlers, I voted for um, Dave Brown and Bob Cottle for the announcers and um, Jim Crockett Sr. and Don Owen as promoters. And from the manager's list, I voted for Grand Wizard. Roy, who did you vote for this year? Okay, um, very similar to uh, Fredo here, by the way. I did the voting for the modern performers category. Uh, I picked four. I had Junkyard Dog, Rick Martell, Sergeant Slaughter, and Kerry Von Erich on that. I mean, that's pretty much a who's who of like us growing up, you know, JYD, you know, the the Mid South thing and the the sellouts he had, probably not sellouts, but close to it at the Superdome. And, you know, Martel with his AWA title run and the Japan stuff he did. Slaughter, Slaughter to me, it's like he crosses over pro wrestling over to mainstream. So I think out of the four, Slaughter would be the one that I would uh, take out of all of those and like above, above and anything deserves to be in there. And then Kerry Von Erich, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> sat all around but you know what Kerry did when he was around was just so amazing you know the 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 title matches the hour um draws that he would have with flair and you know everything that he did just i had to put those four in there uh the next category i got i was the japan category and i know this is going to sound kind of just like fredo's but i got akira Tawe on mine and the reason for Taui is just like Fredo said, you know, if it wasn't for being in there with Misawa, Kobashi, Kawada on his own, Taui would be the, the megastar. But, you know, being around those three, it was like, you know, he's always looked at the lowest of the pillars. But for me, it's like, I really believe that he's Hall of Fame worthy on his own, even being away from that class. So I picked Taui and then I picked Yoshiaki Fujiwara as my other Japanese pick, you know, just so many submissions that he invented. So 
such a dangerous style you know guys were in there and like basically afraid of him like the stuff suzuki is doing currently fujiwara was doing that you know a couple decades before him you know making the the wrestlers and the announcers all afraid of him and that aura about him that he could like snap your arm or a leg in a heartbeat you know just by thinking about it or willing it you know and amazing classic matches he had I, I think if he didn't jump away and do the Fujiwara Gumi and the UWF stuff later in the 80s and all that if he had stuck around he would be a shoe in and right now he's just like on the verge but I think for sure Fujiwara's got to be in there and then later in his career Fujiwara went over to all Japan did the comedy stuff went to Mishinoku Pro you know did all the the smaller promotions to show that he could do it so I I, I really you know he was able to work with anybody in any kind of style so I was big about Fujiwara so that's my second Japan pick and then I got four picks in Mexico uh Huracan Ramirez was my first I just talked to so many old timers that you know, grew up loving or, you know, talking fondly of Hurricane Ramirez. And from everything I've heard and read about him, he's just iconic there. And I couldn't see any Hall of Fame. I mean, there's guys that I didn't vote for that I believe are Hall of Fame worthy, but I just couldn't see them in the Hall of Fame until Hurricane Ramirez went in there first. So Hurricane Ramirez was the first of my four Lucha picks. Then uh, Misioneros de la Muerte was my second uh you know, Fredo pointed this out the other day, the uh, heart attack angle with Santo, which happened in 1980 and not 1982, by the way, you know, <laughs> um, a, a lot of uh, there was a lot of coverage about the heart attack angle when Santo during a match, you know, keeled over, started having a heart attack and stuff like that. And then an era of kayfabe, the journalist and the TV reporters put it as. The, the Missioneros caused it. So there was so much heat on them. And that's actually where they got the name from. Uh, Missioneros de la Muerte, Death Missionaries. Because when you're in the ring, you might die. I mean, it, it was pretty, they were considered so levels and, and heads heads above shoulders above everybody else that that was such a, a huge turnaround. And while trios were already happening, Missioneros was a huge reason trios just from that point were, were kind of like a huge thing. So I almost think that we wouldn't have the the trios like we did today if it wasn't for for Missioneros and their success. Uh, my third lucha pick was Carlos Lagarde, who um, similar Hurricane Ramirez. I've talked to a lot of uh, newer generation and old timers that speak so high highly and fondly of him. I remember watching uh, newscasts from Mexico in uh, 1992 when Lagarde passed away. And it wasn't the level of like Santo or Demon passing away, but he was getting mainstream coverage of his passing. And, you know, both UWA and CMLL TV shows that week featured big things about Lagarde and his passing in his career. So, I mean, he was a very huge deal there and uh, was involved in many title matches, had many title wins. And then my fourth Lucha pick was uh, Los Brazos, you know, Brazo, Brazo de Oro, Brazo de Plata. I personally seen like so much stuff of them on TV, read about it, seen it in person, seen them in their live. And um, <laughs> Afredo, isn't it odd out of those three that Brazo de Plata would be the final one that's that's living? You yeah, and, it, and it's not it's not just them, like the other brothers too. Like a lot of them passed away at a young age. And I think they might be, I think it's Brasso and one Brasso de uh, Plata and one other one, and 
you know, you would have expected, remember, Brasso de Plata, I think for like the past 30 years, people thought because, because of his weight gain and how big he is and he's had these heart, heart attack angles on, on, show, on TV shows that you would have thought he was the one that was going to pass away. No, he's, he's been around for the longest time. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I was at a little show in Carson once that drew like a thousand, and he did that fake heart attack thing where in the middle of the match he keeled over, and I mean the heat alone. I forgot who they were fighting, but I remember like the old lady in the crowd would run up there and try mm. to save him, and oh my god, just the heat alone. And then there, there are many matches with with the Vianos, the Mercenarios. You know, the Infernalis, Intocables, Hermanos Dinamita. I mean, anyone and any, everyone who was a trios, they were in the ring there with. And I, I don't see the Hall of Fame being without those three, you know, the Lucha one. So that was my fourth pick. And then on the non-wrestlers, I rolled the dice and I, I picked Jim Johnson as Jim Johnston as, as my first. I just, he's been so contributed to stuff that even to this date that, a lot of non-fans hear his music uh, that he's done. I believe he wrote like the Ultimate Warrior theme and a lot of other themes that you hear at uh, sporting events. And uh, at the sporting events, I'm pretty sure like, you know, the majority of the fans don't, hey, that's Ultimate Warrior's theme or hey, that's so-and-so's theme or whatever. But he's written a lot of stuff that's crossed over mainstream that uh, we have today. So I, I really feel like Jim Johnson uh, deserves to be in there. Uh, Larry Matisic, from everything that I've heard and read, minus his lists that uh, <laughs> I'm sure Fredo knows what I'm talking about. Like his, uh, <laughs> what was he, he wrote some top 100 lists that didn't include what Eddie Guerrero and uh, Ray Mysterio or something. But It was a book. <laughs> it was his book. Okay. Yeah. Um, other than his lists, I mean, what he did for St. Louis, just what he did for that territory. Uh, the people that speak highly and fondly of him, the gates that he drew, the names that he brought in, the stuff that he was able to do is just so commendable and great. And uh, I definitely had to go with him second. I went with James Melby third. I just think that, you know, he's pretty much like, you know, the predecessor of, of the observers and, and what we have today as far as the newsletters, uh, the serious ones, not the uh, the quote unquote dirt sheet ones. But I just think a lot of what we have today is thanks uh, in part to Melby and what he created and did and all that stuff. And I could be wrong, but um, uh, Brian, didn't is Melby the creator of the five star thing or is that somebody else? No, that was Norm Dooley and Jim Corbett. Dooley. Okay, yeah. got it. James all Melby right. was the right hand to Norm Keitzer and all those Keitzer magazines for so many years. But he also, you know, I mean, you want to talk about influence on the dirt sheets, for lack of a better term. He was the first person, I think, to put Dave Meltzer's name in a magazine saying Davey Meltzer of, you know, whatever, San Jose, California has the California Wrestling News newsletter and you should check it out. I think it was California Wrestling Report. Um, so I think he's one of the guys from like that era of historians, you know, Ron Dobratz, you know, similar sort of influence, although not mainstream with the magazine, you know, as mainstream as you would be from being with the magazines. But I would consider him a historian as well as obviously a part of the wrestling magazines. OK, yeah. Um, and then I Don Owen, um, similar to other promoters that we've discussed off air. Uh, that I'm pretty sure that we've <laughs> talked about. Um, Don Owen ran for X amount of years in Portland. And it's like, this is almost something that where he should have gone in, uh, 
regardless of a vote thing. He should be in there for his longevity and everything he did for Portland. Uh, so that I, that's a, to me, that's a no brainer for sure. Out of, out of my five non-wrestlers, Owen is like the, the, the top one that I would pick. And then Ted Turner was my fifth pick. I just think that wrestling as we know it today is influenced so much by Turner. I mean, would NWA, Mid-Atlantic, uh, WCW, all that, would they have stayed afloat with anybody else being their backer or, or their influence or his decisions? I just think that a lot of what wrestling has is thanks to Turner you know, more than just money, you know, is his standing up for wrestling, his wanting wrestling, his is everything that, you know, he just had that connection with it. And I just think that, you know, he should be uh quote unquote rewarded with a uh, pick uh, spot in the observer hall of fame. I have abstained from voting for Mexican wrestling candidates for the last two years, because I got really disenchanted in 2017 with the log jam, there were so many, in my eyes, it was hard to pick anyone because I thought more than any other category, you had clear cut Hall of Famers, a ton of them. Uh, in 2017, I voted for Los Brazos, the Death Missionaries, and Cien Caras. Um, I'm happy to see that this year, Death Missionaries and Los Brazos got in, but I've abstained the last couple of years. So let's talk a little bit about some of the Lucha Libre candidates and who got in this year. You know, Fredo, first name I want to ask you about, and Roy, feel free to opine, is one that really sticks out to me on your ballot, and that's Caristico, who, of course, had been Mystico, went to the WWE, he was the original Sin Cara, and then would later return to Mexico after things didn't work out well in the WWE. Certainly, for those first few years, he was a sensation. He lit up Arena Mexico. Is that enough to make him a Hall of Famer, or do you see that there's more to his candidacy? Explain your vote for Caristico. Well, for me, it was basically similar to, like, Kerry Von Erich, Junkyard Dog, those kind of wrestlers that, you know, they had a great, like, four- or five-year period where they were very successful in the, you know, during the territory era. And then once they joined WWF or WWE, however you want to call it, and they kind of just got lost in the shuffle or, you know, they pretty much lost what they were in the territory. That kind of happened to Caristico, too, when he went to uh, to WWE and became Sin Cara. You know, he, he kind of became like a, a bit of a joke to a lot of the, you know, the hardcore fans or the, you know, what, what you consider the, you know, the people that vote for this, honestly, that, you know, we don't we wouldn't view him in that that same light as a Hall of Fame candidate. I think the biggest difference for me was that with Caristico, when he was Mystico, that was like a really huge boom in Lucha Libre. And really, there hasn't been another boom like that since then. And it it basically was something that lasted, you know, from the time he started all the way through the time he made the announcement that he was going to be leaving and going to WWE, where, you know, that had to, that was what, more than four to six years. So, that already to me is a Hall of Fame worthy career. But then more importantly is like when he left, when he, I don't, I don't know how he left, the circumstances he, for him leaving WWE, you know, however he left, um, what he's done since then has kind of been like a, he's kind of corrected all the all the wrong that happened to him where he's kind of like, again, he's a headliner for CMLL. He had that little rough patch in AAA with the whole name change as Mysticis. 
And but he was still he still had a very good match with Rey Mysterio in AAA. But other than that, he was very pretty much lost in AAA. So you're basically looking at that little run about a year in AAA and whatever however long he was in WWE. That was really the period where he didn't do very much. But then I kind of felt like he did recover the last couple of years since he's joined CML. He's been very prominent in the promotion. He has been involved in some sellouts, the Penta and Fero Ahmed match. I think that sold out around Mexico when when they first had their first singles match a couple of years ago. And so he's kind of in a weird way, he's kind of like he's kind of matured. You know, it's not like even like stuff that he was getting uh, criticized for not doing in WWE, like not wrestling with the not wrestling through that injury. I think he had one of those a hand injury against Alberto Patron or, you know, where it was. Yeah, it it became like this big deal where, you know, everybody just like, you know, dogged him and said how bad how, how, you know, that's not what a professional does. A professional, you know, you you fight through it and you continue your match and. You know, he's had injuries in, since joining CML where he's actually continued to wrestle. Uh, but to me, it's really the, the boom. I think the boom period was something that a lot of people don't realize how big that was. Where when he, he that period in Mystico, I mean, there he was probably the biggest draw in, in pro wrestling. I mean, one of the biggest draws. Uh, I, and, and that's you're talking about, you know, not just in Mexico, but, you know, when you compare what he was drawing in Mexico, when you compare what other promotions were doing in, in the United States or Japan, he was still drawing like really well. And I just kind of felt that was the biggest difference for me that he he just had a really successful run early in his career. Now, one thing I remember about Mystico's run with uh, the early one was CMLL used to do in 91, 92 because they were so hot with Vampiro and Pero and Conan and all those guys was, you know, they would have their normal shows that they would do in Arena Mexico, Arena Coliseo and all that. But the cr- the the crowds were drawing so packed that they would start running other buildings and the guys were doing like three, sometimes four sh- shots a day on Saturday and Sunday to kind of, you know, make some extra money or whatever. And then AAA started and they just didn't have the crew and the, and the fan support to do that. When Mystico was at his peak, the 2005, 2006 run, they were able to do that again, where they started having multiple shows on the weekends and majority of them were close to selling out, if not selling out. And that was all thanks to Mystico being on the top. And I believe even to this date, he's still the only person that's won like the Observer Wrestler of the Year uh, coming from Mexico. Well, Roy, he isn't on your ballot. Either is Ultima Guerrero and Dr. Wagner Jr. Why did you not vote for them? I just think the Lagarde and Ramirez need to go in before him. If they weren't on the ballot and uh, same with Viano three, trust me, Viano Cicero deserves to be in there. It's just, I believe that Lagarde and Ramirez being older wrestlers that aren't on there already. Um, you know, Dr. Lucha, Steve Sims did this like 100 top luchadors of all time back in the mid nineties. And I believe both Lagarde and Ramirez were like number you know, in the top 10, top 15, I just, out of those picks, I believe those guys deserve it sooner than those guys, but I'm not saying at all that Caristico and Wagner and uh, Ultimo Guerrero at, at their, the right time won't get in there. And they do deserve to be in there. Yeah. I, I kind of felt that for me, it was more like if you could get them in now do it because 
we just saw with Cien Caras. I mean, he should he's a he's a no brainer Hall of Fame um, wrestler, and he's not on there. He got, and it's not just him. I mean, Blue Panther's another one that never made it, and yeah. they're still. I mean, Blue Panther's still very active in pro wrestling. He's kind of cut down, a little, but at the time that he was getting voted, you know, you know, nominated, he was he was still very active, and you know, people were just not, you know, because the longer a wrestler is around the more they get, you know, criticized. And that's exactly what happened with Viano Tercero, which is why I think it was, I was surprised he actually made it because, you know, for the longest time, he should have been in 20 years ago, honestly, because, you know, after the Atlantis Viano 3 uh, mass match, that should have been his, you know, his swan song to get in. Because, you know, once he continued on after 2001, people started looking at, you know, oh, he's getting older. And for whatever reason, I think the longer they're in your mind and you're seeing them wrestle, and they have these horrible matches because they've gotten older. I think it, it kind of hurts them a little bit. But, um, you know, to me, I think Viano Tercero is somebody has, that should have been in. And, I mean, all the guys, I think this was like the one, the, the category where you could go through every single guy and you could say that they have a, an opportunity. They should be considered as a Hall of Famer. Even like Volador Jr., even though I know there's a lot of people who are kind of very in the middle with him because of, you know, the last couple of years. I mean, I think a lot of the criticism for him is that he's kind of like got that whole mailed in personality in his matches. And uh, I would agree. But you got to remember, this guy's been in CMLL for like the last 20 years. And, you know, if you're wrestling the same guys over and over again at some point and not just over and over again, but the same type of match, you're going to get that. You're going to get that, uh, you know, that look every so often, especially because everything's being streamed live nowadays. So you're going to get that. But to me, like Ultimo Girl, I mean, he had an incredible run in like the middle of the this past decade where, you know, the Atlantis feud, everything he's done, the tag team with Ray Bucanero, the trio with the, you know, the the the, the, the Guerreros Laguneros, Guerreros del Infierno. He's had so much that he's been able to do that. You know, he definitely is somebody that at some point was gonna get in. And for me, it's like might as well get him in now because, you know, the longer he's around. And he's and a lot of the luchadors when they talk, they don't talk about how oh I'm thinking about retirement. This is what I you know I'm going to retire at 45 or 50. No, they're if they're at 45 or 50, they're telling you at that point in time that they're going to be around for another 15 or 20 years. Uh, we still see Mil Mascaras wrestling, and I think he's close to 90 at this point. Uh, so you know, I think I think I'd rather see guys get in, you know, at the right time. Even you know, even if they still have more to prove. Uh, I, I kind of feel like you kind of have to like get them in just because, like I said, a lot of a lot of people who vote, they kind of for, they kind of forget about certain, you know, they remember the more recent stuff and they don't they kind of forget the older stuff for a lot of the guys. You know, for the United States, it's broken down. There's modern performers and then there's historical wrestlers. You know, I vote for every year uh, Wild Bull Curry, for instance, the uh, historical performers candidates. But. With Lucha, I mean, you have Carlos Lagarde and Hurricane Ramirez on the same list as Caristico, for instance. I mean, it's tough to weigh the two different things. The two different It's two different categories, really. It's modern Lucha and historical figures in Lucha. When you look at the ballot and you see some of the names that have not gotten in, do you have any concerns with the way Lucha is addressed in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame? Fredo, I'll go to you first. I do kind of have an issue just because so many people don't even know like Karloff Lagarde's career or who Ramirez. Ramirez. And I'm sure there's been other guys in the past where people are like, I don't know who this person is. Um, 
I mean, I think last year um, Ruben Juarez made the list, and I think that was based off his um, obituary because I, I actually wrote a no bid on him and I actually found a lot of information on him and it was like he actually made the 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 nom- he was nominated he made it to the ballot and I I was surprised but there was he actually did have a really strong career in the sixties but it's like nobody really remembers that nobody was really around watching lucha. You know, I, I would be curious to know who's voting right now. And, you know, we're even getting that with the uh, American, um, you know, categories and even other categories. You're starting to lose a lot of the older, um, you know, historians, reporters. So you're not going to get the same reaction to a lot of the the older guys because that there's a certain group of people that are not around older wrestlers as well. I mean, you know, I, I would imagine there's a lot of wrestlers that probably would have been nominated years ago, but like. Now who's going to vote for them? I mean, everybody's like, you're, you're basically like, you're down to like, maybe like Terry Funk is around as the one person who remembers seeing certain guys like, or hearing stories about them through, you know, the older generation of, of wrestlers. So, you know, with Lucha, I kind of think that it would be nice if they would actually like, if Meltzer would actually like split it a little bit where he had the modern Lucha and the, the you know, the pre, I would guess pre-1980 because I don't think anybody's really going to vote for those guys. But at the same time, maybe if you switch it off, switch, separate it, and you maybe let the people who actually know a little bit about them kind of, like, consider them, that might work. But at the same time, like I said, I don't really know who who votes. Like, besides myself and Roy and, you know, a handful of other people, I don't know if there's a lot of people who are doing a lot of uh, research or reading up on, on older luchadors that have a, an opportunity that should be in. Uh, like I said, there's been other guys. The Espantos have never been uh, nominated. There's, uh, I think, some of the, I think, Angel Blanco, guys like that. There's there's so many guys from the past that haven't been uh, nominated that or added to the ballot that you would think should belong. But, you know, there's not a lot of, um, I, don't, I just don't know if there's, there's enough people that know about them to really consider them, you know, being considered for the Hall of Fame. One thing that really hurts Lucha in itself as far as the voting is Japan did an amazing job in preserving video history. Yes. I mean, we we got the IWE, the JWA. I mean, we got pristine yeah. footage from those years that, you know, like what was it? Um, a, a few months ago, uh, someone's uh, – um, I don't want to say his name on here, but he contacted me, a uh, certain tape trader in, in uh, Philadelphia, or uh, not, not, not Philly, Pittsburgh, if you get my drift. Um, and he goes all, hey, uh, in Japan, they just had some TV show where, I mean, they had like classic JWA stuff with, with Dory against Anoki and Baba and complete and stuff like that. And it was like the most beautiful condition I've ever seen. And I mean, Japan just did a great job of this. And in the United States, you know, you got to give WWE the, 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 their credit. I mean, with the stuff that they've released, I mean, for, for a while when they were doing the hidden gems, I mean, those old 40s things with Dez and Gunkel and all yeah. that are just amazing. Well, what helps out with Japan is that, it wasn't the promotions. It was the TV networks. Yes, yes, absolutely. And a big problem with uh, Lucha was, I believe it was the big earthquake in Mexico City in 84. From what I understand, the TV network lost a lot of footage because of that. 
So that right there just made it, it makes it difficult. And a lot of the older footage that we have, you know, like someone told me he had some Santo footage and I'm like, Oh really? Let me see it. Send it to me. And the footage was like wrestling matches from his movies. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) To me, that's not, you know, that's like watching Lucha underground. I don't want to watch a movie. I want to see him in the ring. The the only Santo stuff I've seen is, um, his Puerto Rico match where he teamed with Carlos Colon and uh, maybe a UWA match that um, uh, New J- or we- w- World Pro Wrestling in Japan filmed. But I've never really seen Santo footage outside of the movies and those couple sources. So if Santo, who is the biggest star of Mexico of all time, has that little footage, well, I sure as hell know Ligardi, Ramirez, uh, Dory Dixon uh Rene Guajardo I mean a lot of these names are just going to be obituaries and written on a piece of paper and stories written about them but there's no video footage and um a lot of the voters out there are going to go by what they've seen video wise and that unfortunately right there is why Lucha gets snubbed a lot is because that video footage just isn't there and trust me I'm thankful that you know week world pro wrestling filmed a lot of that Sangre Chicana and MASA Uno uh, hair yeah. versus hair stuff. Oh, that's great. Oh, stuff. my God. And they really helped. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I that that's probably one of the biggest drawbacks to uh, Lucha is just so much of it is is probably lost forever. But, you know, it, it's um, we guys like me, Fredo and, uh, you know, Viper and, you know, Cubs fan. We try our best to get the, the stuff out there, the stories, what we've heard, you know, the guys talking about them and stuff, because these are names that, you know, if, if you're a diehard fan or you got to, you know, want a little know a little bit about it, you should know who these people are. Yeah. To expand upon that a second. And Fredo, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Feel yeah, free to fine. say whatever you were going to say, but. Also, can you explain a little bit to the listeners out there who may not be too aware of it, what the actual history of Lucha Libre on TV was, when it was on TV, when it wasn't on TV, and why there wouldn't be so much footage available? I believe Freda could probably answer this best because I believe, wasn't there a TV like ban until 1981 or 82? It, it used to air like in the early days. I think it was just part of like something that's free, you know, it's it's affordable tell uh, affordable content for the TV show. So there was early stuff uh, because there was that that whole rivalry between uh, Luteros promotion and then the promotion that started later on the Televisentro. They actually had a little bit of I think they had some TV, but it wasn't something that was uh, consistent. And then it just pretty much went off TV because they they what they wanted was what they what they were afraid of was that it was going to take away from the attendance. So that's always been the biggest fear. And it's to this day, you see it with CMLL when they don't air a show live, uh, you know, which is in, insane in 2019, when they don't air a show live. And even Triple H just did this with um, Triple Mania Regia. Um, they, they they still feel that TV will not, will, will or even the streaming services, it will like cut the attendance, which for a lot of people, that's not necessarily the case. Um, they, I think there's there's nothing better than going to a, a big wrestling show live, in my opinion. I mean, you know, you could watch it on TV. I mean, the people that are going to watch it are, are just, you know, the people that can't attend anyways. But, um, and then like in the 80s, it started, the funniest thing is that it didn't start airing in Mexico. What happened was um, 
EMLL was uh, sending tapes to the old, um, I don't know if you remember, I think you probably remember this better, Roy, because you were from, more from California. Um, that network that was before Galavision, remember Sin? Yep, I do. They would get that and they were getting videos from them and, and the, the, you know, the, 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 the footage from Mexico and they were actually airing that. So that's where they were getting it. And then in Mexico, it really started later in the, in the eighties, but I think they would show it like, it was never anything national, more of a local thing where they would actually send the shows to local TV networks. Cause I remember I was, I was watching um, EMLL through the Juarez TV network uh, and not uh, what was at that point, television or whatever it was before that. It was Televisa at that point. And, and then like, and that was like in the mid eighties. And then um, I was getting Juarez Lucha from another, you know, the actual Juarez Lucha from another, a local network. And, but you weren't getting it from like the, the main network. So that's why you don't really hear about, like, if you see like a lot of the old footage that EM, like CML would put up, it's a lot of the stuff that they got off tape traders or the people that sell it outside of the, outside of the arena. Cause they don't actually have a lot of that stuff. Um, you sometimes they'll pop up and they'll find something and you'll be like, you'll be surprised. The guy who actually does have a lot of old footage, but he's very uh, particular is a guy who's a very big time collector uh, by the name of Christian Cement outside. He's in Mexico and he has this huge collection of like magazines, posters, masks. And I think he has a lot of footage because he's actually, I, I think he got some footage off me several years ago, but he actually is somebody who's collected for a long time. And he's kind of considered like the, the foremost expert in all that stuff. But I think with TV, it's always been that, you know, it, it, it never was a lot of the stuff. Isn't something you would get from, you know, what became available to us was always something that was more from the United States guys who had satellites or the guys who had cable and actually were getting, um, that, that, the, 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 what was Galavision or Televisa at that point in time and not necessarily from Mexico that kind of came in, in the mid, you know, in, in 1990, 89, 90 around that period. The earliest CMLL TV I've seen complete is probably around like March of 85. Everything I've seen before that is usually from, you know, World Pro Wrestling from Japan. Uh, and then some news clips here and there of like UWA, because it seemed like UWA was very friendly to the uh, the uh, news reporters down yeah. there. You would see a lot of UWA footage on there. I just wish someone was there like what, you know, Hogan Connect and you know, those big shows and all that. But I guess they were just, you know, had that mentality. Like if the TV cameras are here, we're not going to sell out uh, Quattro Caminos anymore. Yeah. And, and that's the sad thing that like, there's no, you the only UWA footage is that and the handheld footage that, that we've been able to find. The Andre connect. Yeah. yeah. Other than that, it's like, there's no UWA. I think the earliest EMLL I've seen is the complete, I think was actually, there's a 1980 Guadalajara show that I have on my uh, YouTube channel that, it's Andre the Giant's first run in Mexico. And that was something I found from somebody like, you know, one of those random tape traders in, in Mexico where you're just like, you, you, you contact him. And if he says he's willing to trade, you work it out as quickly as possible. You get everything you can. And, you know, then you, because you know he's going to disappear at some point. And, uh, but that's kind of like, like the earliest, I think, complete show from, from EMLL is that, that Guadalajara show. But um, I think from EMLL, there's a handful of shows from like 84, probably, because that's around the time when, um, when um, 
El Santo passed away and they, they, they were, somebody was actually recording. But that was actually not recorded in Mexico City. That's somebody from, um, from the United States that was actually recording. And uh, he was recording a lot of um, rustling from the, I think it's somebody that uh, Kurt Brown knows. And he was recording a lot of stuff. And we don't know if he has more stuff, but, you know, other than that, that's all we were able to get. And we got a lot of that from that time period. Now, that Christian Cement guy that you mentioned, he's like a touring museum. Like, he'll take his masks and yeah. his, uh, stuff and go around and, like, have these, like, like kind of meet and greet things where some of the workers will be there and he'll show off his masks. You know, you, you go in for an admission price or whatever and he'll talk about it. And, I mean, that guy's got, like, old Santo masks. And, I mean, he's uh, definitely the top-of-the-line stuff. But, you know, to, to your knowledge, is that guy, like, willing to, like, trade with, like, normal people or like what what does he do as far as his tapes and all that with, with video he's actually one of those guys who thinks that there's going to be a lot of value in that stuff so he kind of like wants to sell it or something i don't know what it is because um i don't know if you remember seeing those shows that um did like documentaries in in mexico the i think they were called historias in Garzadas or something like that was that uh, the mid-2000s yeah something yes, like that. I, I can't remember, remember what that. they're called they were they were called something historia something and there was something an extra work like better. there was one where it had Monico on there, like taking off his mask at the end or something. Yeah, well, there's you you know the match that has Sangre Chicana, the the one where he do he, it was that one week where Sangre Chicana drops his mask, and I think there was another person that drops his mask um, the the previous week. Yeah, I think it was Fishman that won both ma- both matches. Well, um, he actually there is um, there's a few people that believe he has that match complete or both matches complete or that whole series complete, and he's not all he's allowed was that those clips. He highlight. Yes. yes. Are, th- are there a lot of Mexican tape traders? I'm, you know, in my years of tape trading, and it's been a while, obviously, I never traded with someone in Mexico, and I never got any rare Lucha Libre footage until it got into circulation here in the States. Are there tape traders in, I mean, I'm, obviously you guys well, said there are, but are there a lot of tape traders in Mexico? Nowadays, there's not that many, but, um, and there really weren't ever that many, because I think the internet has always, they've always been about a, couple, a few years behind us on, on as far as the internet and how to use it and stuff like that. And um, I remember talking to Mike Tenay when I bought his um, Japanese tape collection. And he was, t- I was telling him, because at that point in time when I bought that, I was already trading with somebody in Monterey for, um, you know, the, the Viano 3 Atlantis mass match. I was one of the first people that got that. I was actually the one that told the guy, you know, because he asked me if I wanted to trade for it. And I said, yes. And I told him, are you going to send them to other people? And he's like, do you know? And he gave me the names of the people that he was going to send them to. And, and he asked me, are they good people? And I said, yeah, you know, I, I know them. One, I think I think Bob Barnett was one of them. Bob Barnett was afterwards. But because um, I know Bob Barnett got it the, 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 the following pay-per-view. But that first pay-per-view, it was really only three of us that got it. Um, it was Rob Viper, myself, and the guy who used to write for... Um, cover lucha for one wrestling.com this is going back years uh, for those of you listening uh but uh so the funny thing is the guy who i trade with now his son is actually one of the guys who runs um lucha shows in monterey mexico uh roberto figueroa so he was actually one of the, the first guys i started trading with but he was somebody like his dad and his because his sons were into wrestling and they were more into like knowledgeable as far as the internet because they were you know, young kids you know, if you're young, you're getting into this. It's something very new, something interesting. So he was a little bit more understanding about like how to do this stuff. He was on 
a bunch of the, ma- the message boards we were on at that time. And he actually contacted me and he was like the one of the first people I traded with. And he would send me a lot of the, you know, the Monterey Lucha IWRG uh, from like 99, 2000. I, I think we kept trading for close to 10 years. And then from that point, I met uh, another guy, which was through the, uh, the Univision uh, forums. So, you know, I don't know why I went on that forum, but he was there posting and he had this, he was one of, one of the things that you'll know about uh, Mexican uh, Lucha Libre fans is that they write in all caps. They love to write in all caps. <laughs> and this guy loved to write in all caps. And I saw this guy, um, he had a link to his, um, to his website. And I thought, well, let me check it out. And one of the things you learn about Lucha uh, people in tape trading or people in, in Mexico is that they don't really care about like complete shows. So what, what he would get and what later happened was he would send it to Bob Barnett uh, was uh, compilations. So like if you look at Bob Barnett's compilations from like around 2004, 2005, it's, it's basically compilations that he would send them. But he was trading with me before. And what I got him to do was I told him, hey, why don't you just send me the complete shows and we'll figure it out. Now, this is VHS tapes at the time. So, and he's like, yeah, sure. I think we started around 2003. Then we switched over to DVDs. So he would actually send me everything he would record off TV. So it was a CMLL show, AAA. Um, there was a couple of other shows that I really didn't want because it was like a lot of talking, which later on actually is worth, uh, it's worth like historical purposes just because I find a lot of information in interviews when I'm writing about wrestlers, because a lot of, you know, a lot of wrestlers, when they tell you stories, you know, sometimes they might go off on tangents and talk about stuff that you don't really care about. But every once in a while, they'll point out something that you're just really interested in. And that's something you need to add to your uh, story. And so he would send me all this stuff. And then later on, he would ask me about like other people like, hey, what do you know about, like I said, Bob Barnett? What do you know about um, this guy? And I would tell him, no, they're good guys. They're, they're reliable. Don't worry about it. They're, they're good people. So that, that was the second guy. And then those were the only two guys that I knew who were tape trading. Then we found a few other guys. Um, there was this one guy in Monterey that actually had a lot of Monterey Lucha from like the early 90s and I think late 80s. So he was actually one of the guys who had the Thundercats versus, um, I think it's the Thundercats versus Trio. Trio Fantasia. Yeah. yeah. I, and then there's one with the Turtles. I think there's one with the Turtles also. And yeah. So that was actually a big, that was like, oh God, I want to watch that. And so I traded with him. And then there was this other guy. And this was this guy, the only thing I regret is that he had in his collection a Cinta de Oro versus um, Rocky Star match from Juarez mm. where um, Rocky Star loses his mask. And I was so wanting to get that. But I actually, when he sent me his list, his list was the spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet was in different colors. And like every single part, like you would have like a list, like he would have his WWE stuff in green. Then he would like have Lucha like in blue. Then he had like some Japan stuff in, in, in you know, in purple and like all the AAA stuff. And in, 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 yeah, and it's so many things on there that was so confusing. So what I told, what I did was I messaged Rob Viper and I told him, hey, go through the list. Tell me what, what we need, what we don't have. He went through the entire thing. We got everything out of him. Uh, what I had to do was, this was the other. This is in another problem that you experience with dealing with um, people in Mexico at that time. I think it's still kind of like that um, now, but they don't like if you want to buy something, you can't really use PayPal. So what they do yes. is they send you a number and it's a bank account number with a name, and 
sometimes the name doesn't match the person you're dealing with. <laughs> so you're kind of like, you're kind of like, okay, this could go really south really quickly. So what I did with this guy was I asked my, the guy I was trading with if he would handle it and he handled it. I told him, Hey, what you'll get, you make copies of everything. You keep it. If you want to trade it, sell it, do whatever you want with it. I'm cool with it. Just, just get it for us. And that's how we got a lot of other stuff. But the only thing is I didn't get that Cinta de Oro Rocky Star match because we didn't see it till afterwards. And I was always. Hey, Fredo, Fredo, was that guy the one that had the uh, Vampiro, uh, Latin lover and uh, there was like a triangular hair match. I think what was it Sangre Chicano was the third guy or something. Yeah, that that's the Monterey guy, not the wow. not 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 the guy we later called color spreadsheet guy. Because <laughs> yeah, but the Monterey guy was like he. They all have these really weird names, and it's kind of like you know they were using Hotmail accounts and all that stuff. So it's like you're kind of like oh I don't know I don't know about dealing with these guys. They knew me because they knew my reputation at that point as a tape trader, which you know. I don't want to brag or anything, but it was really, I was very reliable at that just because it's my, it's my little OCD when it comes to, when it. Yeah. When 92, 1992, I lucked out was yeah. when I first got the observer, you know, there was a link for Lucha Libre weekly and uh, I got the Lucha Libre weekly. And then I called Steve Sims up when he started talking and he was like, well, Roy, where do you live? And I'm like, oh, I live in Garden Grove, which, um, you know, is less than two hours from the border. And he's all, you have a satellite dish, don't you? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> he's all, dude, okay, I want you to do me a favor. Uh, Saturday, Saturday afternoon at, at 1.30 or 12.30 or something like that, I want you to go to Morales 1, number 18, on your satellite dish. And I want you to see if it's Lucha. Lo and behold, I go on there. And it's fuzzy and it's bad, but it's from Mexico City and I got UWA TV. So, I mean, I, I was like hitting the jackpot. I got that CMLL Guadalajara TV uh, off of there. I mean, yeah. that was, those were some great times. And, you know, the four or five years I was doing it and trust me, I kicked myself in the butt every day that, you know, I didn't do it longer and stuff, but I'm trying to, you know, give back with all my uploads nowadays and stuff like that. But I mean, tape trading was so fun back in the days and just introduced you to a lot of people and, you know, those were great days at all. And just to be able to preserve history and, you know, do all that stuff. It's, it's amazing. Well, guys, before we move off Lucha and before we run out of time, you know, several years back, it may have even been 10 years now, but I remember at one point, super porky ended up on WWE TV and it was in kind of a silly comedy role and it was rather brief and he was gone. There are some fans who only know, Los Brazos from Super Porky appearing on WWE TV and then being gone. To the fans in America who don't understand the historical importance of this trios, explain exactly who they were and why they were important. They were one of the most, you know, well, you know, if you're only thinking about Super Porky based off of that, at that point in his career, he was pretty much, you know, shot. You know, he was, you know, more of a comedy character. Even in CML, you would he would get him and he would do the whole uh, pretending to be swimming on the ropes spot. And he would do all these little comedy spots and dance where, you know, reggae, um, you know, afros or whatever he was wearing at the time. And, you know, dreadlocks or whatever he was wearing. But like, if you go back, Los Brazos are probably one of the most important trios of all time. Um, not the biggest guys, but just like, because they were, I think, I think Porky probably was like 5'9", probably 5'8". I might even be giving him a little bit more credit at being as, as tall as he is. 
as as how far he, how tall he was, but it's like they were just these little portly guys, and you didn't really think much of them. But once the bell rang, you just knew they could go. Um, they come from a really a really a family that goes back several years. Um, their father Shadito Cruz Russell never was a huge star, but he was somebody who kind of was more. It's kind of similar to the Casas family, where you know Pepe Casas wasn't a huge star, just more of a an independent wrestler who made it more in the on the smaller arenas and was a was a was a guy who you know all the luchadors knew because the stars knew because you know they were you know they were guys who were on the on the on the local shows. But um, Shadito Cruz, you know, from him came all the all the. the I think it ended up being like about six sons because there was also like Robin um, and a few other guys, a few other brothers. I, I think there's one that's still active right now that um, was involved in the whole incident. Uh, I don't know how many people uh, remember the whole incident from a few years ago when um, the Alvarado family, uh, that's the that's the actual name of the entire Brasso dynasty, that there, there's the Alvarado family. Um, a few years ago, and this is taking it also to the other Hall of Famer, Ultimo Guerrero. A few years ago, when Bra- El Brasso passed away, uh, there was a huge argument afterwards because El Brasso was actually the union, the union, um, the CML wrestlers union leader. And when he passed away, the 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 power in that kind of was fluctuating, and the Alvarado family kind of felt that they deserved the power, you know, to continue being in charge of the union, and it, they ended up not getting that. And the person that they kind of blamed for that was actually Ultimo Guerrero. So um, you see a whole video of, you know, La Mascara, Psycho Clown, Maximo, um, the the uncle, the one one of the one of the older Alvarados that's still alive, and they're all wrecking Ultimo Guerrero's um, car, which is one of the big stories of the past decade in Lucha Libre. Um, but you know, these guys. Must- were, Mascara and Maximo got fired from CML. Yes, pretty much. They got they got fired, and they pretty much, you know, fortunately for Maximo, he made it to AAA, and La Mascara is kind of, you know, he's been kind of in limbo, but now that Roosh and and Bestia are out, they're kind of reuniting at the Bingo Bernabla's independent in on independent shows. But it's like there was a period where these guys that like these guys were like, you know, in a weird way, kind of changed CML also because it took a it took one of the it kind of went from being a, a more of an Alvarado Mexico City um, group that was running CML to more of the Ultimo Guerrero Laguneros with Blue Panther and all those guys kind of being more of the more of the power within the promotion. Um, but you know the Alvarados, if you go back to the Brazos, if you watch a lot of the earliest footage and a lot of the earliest footage of the Brazos is actually you'll see Brazo de Oro and Brazo de Plata in New Japan Pro Wrestling. And you see that they're actually not, they're kind of like more just um, stocky guys. They're not really overweight or anything. They're just stocky guys. And they were, at a very young age, they were very rambunctious. They were very wild. Um, there are stories from a lot of um, wrestlers, not only from them, there are wrestlers who have told stories. Black Terry talking about how, you know, these guys at a very young age were crazy and they loved to like get in fights. They were not afraid of anyone. There's actually, um, I think there was a tour in New Japan early on were um, Solar. I don't know if you guys have told heard the story of Solar when he wrestled Tiger Mask. Tiger Mask actually hurt his um, arm. Hurt actually. Um, I think he kind of went. Uh, he shot on Solar and hurt his arm. And like Solar, kind of like you know, let it pass because you know it's a job. You know, he's not going to make an argument over it. And Brasso de Oro and Brasso de Plata at a very young age actually wanted to fight 
tiger masks. And there are stories of them wanting to fight some of the other foreigners in New Japan uh, because, you know, they got picked on because they're smaller guys, you know, smaller Mexican guys. But when you see them in, in, in Mexico, they were known for being, you know, if you look at what UWA is known for and what later became independent wrestling in Mexico as being more of a, of a brawling style, it's basically the Brazos who made that, um, made that them and uh, Paraguayo, Viano Tercero, they were really the guys who kind of took that and took it to a whole new level. Uh, you originally had Brasso de Oro and Brasso de Plata as a tag team. Later on, Brasso joined in and they just became this really great trio. And, you know, they weren't just great brawlers. They were really good technical wrestlers. Because, you know, one of the things that a lot of the luchadors do is that they not only have to be good, you know, at one style, but they actually train in amateur wrestling. Like if you hear a lot of the older luchadors, they'll talk about how they trained in, um, they spent maybe a year or two like in amateur wrestling as kids because they're around wrestling for such a long, you know, you know, at a young age. So you're, they're not only getting into the ring in pro wrestling, but they're actually like, they're actually being told by their parents, you know, their fathers who wrestled or the older generation that was around them telling them, you have to learn the basics. You have to be an amateur wrestler. So they were very complete wrestlers, even though they were known more as brawlers, there's a lot of like really good matches between um, Brasso and, and El Hijo de Santo, um, Brasso de Plata. When they work as trios, when they're working against like the, the Fantastics, uh, they're, they're not brawling. They're more just working a faster style. Um, they, they were more of a trio that could work, you know, they could work a brawling style with the Vianos. They could work a technical style with those Misioneros, although the Misioneros were far away from you know, that's the other thing about Misioneros. I think a lot of people, when they think of the Misioneros, they kind of think of Nero Navarro now as a technical technical wrestler. But in, an, in the early period, they were more like the Brazos, where they were more of, you know, aggressive, fast-paced wrestling. And that's what the Brazos were. And, you know, you really kind of, I think a lot of people, like, if you go back and you watch a lot of their stuff, and there's a lot of stuff from them, like, not during the, their younger days, but more like in their prime years when they were, when they joined EMLL, when they were like feuding with the Pirata Morgan and his brothers, the the Bucaneros, there's a really good, um, there's some good trios matches and tag matches, singles matches between all those guys. And then you kind of like, you have a lot of the, the Hamada's UWF uh, stuff that's available. They're on a lot of that stuff and they have some really good uh, matches with like Ron Hamada and those type of guys. So they, they were able to like, not just be known as great brawlers, but they're really well-rounded wrestlers. And I think that's one of the unfortunate things that, a lot of the fans are more familiar with them, like probably post 2000. So they, what they probably remember is, you know, I'll even tell you, they'll remember Super Porky for being more of a comedy wrestler and doing the whole D the WWE appearance. What they'll remember about Brasso de Oro is probably him losing his hair every summer. He would lose his hair in, in <laughs> CMLL. And then um, El Brasso, he had a, a run in AAA where he became a Latin boiler, which was basically a, a, a spoof on Latin lover. So he was basically doing a stripper gimmick. And that's probably what uh, more like the newer generation of fans probably remember them as. But they were really good when they were younger and, you know, during their prime years. El Brazo marrying Lady Apache is Hall of Fame worthy <laughs> enough as it is. A couple more things before we wrap things up. And, you know, in the previous conversation here on this episode, Dan Farron, myself and Marty Goldstein were talking about the idea that maybe there should be a category for tag teams because... There are certain guys that got into the Hall of Fame, but 
a tag team partner that they had a Hall of Fame caliber tag team with isn't in. I mean, in this case, someone who originally I didn't vote for and eventually I started voting for him after reevaluating everything, Akira Taui isn't in. But perhaps Akira Taui should be on the ballot as Akira Taui and Toshiaki Kawada, although he is already in the Hall of Fame. So I want to get your thoughts on that, but also let's tie it into Lucha Libre. The Death Missionaries are in, so that means El Tejano is now in the Hall of Fame. Should Los Cowboys, as a separate entity, also be a team considered for the Hall of Fame? Fredo, let me start with you. Yeah, I I think that would be interesting just because they were really it's it's kind of it's funny you brought that up because I think that's that would be like early nineties. They're probably one of the tag teams that really influenced uh some of the later tag teams. Like if you look at what they were doing at that time. Uh, there was nobody else doing that in in Mexico as far as tag team wrestling because you know tag team wrestling wasn't that big at certain times in Mexico. But I think they probably should belong. And even like the trios, I think there's certain guys like we talk about Ciancaras. Um, if he goes in, what about his brothers? I mean, they were a trio that was a trot. They weren't the great trio like as far as workers, but they were a very big drawing trio. Well, that's what hurts Ciancaras, I think, in a lot yeah. of voters' eyes is the fact that despite the fact that he was in the main event against Conan and that show that drew that big house, he wasn't a good worker, at least at that point in his career, at the point where more people saw him than at any other point in his career. You, you know, the other thing is that he also had that big uh, match with Rio de Jalisco Jr. So it's like he's got two matches that automatically uh, you could match against anybody else in, in, in the Hall of Fame. And that right there should tell you. But I think that's also that like you said, he wasn't considered a great worker. And a lot of people, when they talk about him, it's like, yeah, he wasn't that great. Um, charisma, but I mean, the guy had tons of charisma. Um, but as far as tag team wrestling, I, I think there are like, I think there's even like, uh, like I think Anderson and Blanchard were in this. Uh, and I would consider them a, a Hall of Fame worthy tag team, although they weren't together for a long stretch of time. But they're a tag team. Like if you go back and watch them, they were just an amazing team. I mean, there's a lot of other, like, I don't know who you would consider as a, as a Hall of Fame level tag team, or uh, because you know, then you're going to have to talk about whether or not there were draws, or I don't know what the criteria would be, uh, because a lot of tag teams, like I think, I think that's the one big difference I I I would point out with like the when when the when I was talking about the Misioneros and Brazos, they actually got to headline shows in Mexico, yeah. and which wasn't the same thing with a lot of the American tag teams. I think I think it be I'd be curious to see what tag teams would be considered. Cause I mean, what, I mean, would the heart foundation be considered the British bulldogs. Uh, about, I'll give you a, a name and, and I definitely want to hear what Roy thinks about this. How about the Steiner brothers? They are yeah, somewhat they were, overlooked, but if you look at a period of time from 1989 to 1994, what tag teams were better than them? Yeah, no. I think they definitely, I, I think they're, they're, they're attacking that I would consider, uh, and they did a lot of stuff that at that time like was very innovative too. Like you, you didn't have a big guy like, like Scott Steiner doing a Frankensteiner back in the early nineties. Remember when he did that, I, people were like, Oh, that was amazing. Um, so, I mean, as a tag team, they were, they were, they're pretty high up there. The thing about the Steiners too, that gets overlooked was they had such appeal that I, I can't think of anyone else singles or, or tag team otherwise that were in such high demand with both America and Japan. 
that that's yeah. the thing too is New Japan after that Tokyo Dome match with Hase and Sasaki, it was like, oh yeah, you know they had to have them basically on every tour, every other tour, and you know IWGP Tag Champs and you know fighting all the teams and stuff like that, and uh, you know that's right there is just how in demand that they were. I don't remember any of the other WCW talent that were over there for so many tours. Other than, you know, the Steiners, I think Sting was over there a couple times a year, but the Steiners were on multiple tours and that was because of their work rate, their charisma, how over they were when, you know, Scott would run around and Rick would get underneath his legs and all that stuff. I mean, they were over and the work rate backed up their argument too. I, I would be curious to know, like, like you were saying earlier about how one guy might be in the Hall of Fame, would you consider the tag team going in just to get, you know, a Kuratawa in. But I mean, I, I would be kind of curious if that would be something, because I mean, you have like a lot of great tag teams from like the early nineties, uh, Misawa and Kawada, uh, Misawa Kobashi. Uh, I don't know, like they're already in the hall of fame, but it's like, I would actually kind of like maybe a, a section for just tag team wrestling. I kind of would like to see that just because it's like, it's something so different. Well, the one I've mentioned in several segments already, Steamboat and Youngblood. Yes, another tag team that was amazing. Ricky Steamboat's in. Jay Youngblood does not have any shot of getting voted into the Hall of Fame. However, that team, that unit, for several years, were maybe the best in-ring tag team in the United States. And which brings up, too, that's part of my argument for Sergeant Slaughter getting in, was his team with Kernodal and the feud with Steamboat and Youngblood. Let's put the Iron Cheek feud aside for a second. That feud, that feud alone by itself, to me, is Hall of Fame worthy. I vote for Sergeant Slaughter. I do because I think he's a combination of a few different things I look at. Work rate, he had it. And for those who only saw him from 1990 on, go back and watch the early 80s. Yes. He was an amazing oh. worker, did great promos, was great as a heel, was great as a babyface, was a draw, was in a good tag team, obviously. But also, I look at someone who transcended wrestling. I knew Sergeant Slaughter before I was a wrestling fan. Kids at school knew who Sergeant Slaughter was from G.I. Joe. He wasn't just a sergeant on G.I. Joe. We knew him as a wrestler. We knew the name Sergeant Slaughter meant wrestling. And I take a guy like that, and I take someone who has crossover appeal, and I think that is an important thing to weigh when voting for the Hall of Fame. I'm the same way with you with Slaughter. Because I I grew, the first time I heard of Slaughter, I think I already had seen him wrestle because I, I actually bought that. Um, remember that thirty those thirty minute videos that AWA AWA, used to produce? yeah. Yes, I bought the Sergeant Slaughter and Company one, and I would watch that every time I would after school. I would watch that that video and Rock and Roll Wrestling, Johnny Legend's Rock and Roll Wrestling. Those two <laughs> videos I would wear out, and there's I still have them. I would wear them out, and I would just constantly watch them as soon as I would get home. And the other thing I remembered Sergeant Slaughter when he was in a, a GI Joe. So that even interested, like that even, I knew that he was a big deal. But like the first time I actually like, like watched him consistently was really the WWE, um, the, the WWF early 90s run. Because, you know, there wasn't, I wasn't getting AWA at the end, in the, in the, in the 80s. But now that, that I have like access to the WWE network, I've been watching a lot of his stuff from Mid-Atlantic and the guy was phenomenal. I mean, like I, I, I totally, do, I'm surprised like, I am honestly surprised that, like I said, I was surprised that one of Terry Von Erich, the Junkyard Dogs, 
or Sergeant Slaughter didn't make the lit, make the um, make the Hall of Fame this 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 year, just because to me, like a lot of the people who that are voting right now are probably around my age range now. So I would think that they would be like they would have grown up with these guys. You know, maybe like I said, there's there's based on where you were born, where you were located, um, it might have been you might have not seen that person. But I was expecting one of them to get in, and I was surprised neither any of them got in. Uh, I, I was surprised. Honestly, I was surprised that all the luchador, so many luchadors made it, and I was surprised one of those three did not make it. I vote for Slaughter and Junkyard Dog every year. I have voted for Kerry in the past. I haven't the last couple of years, but again, next year, if they don't get at least 50% of the vote, Sergeant Slaughter and Kerry Von Erich are dropped off the ballot. But Roy, yeah. what were you going to say? Um, to go back to the tag team thing, I did want to bring this up is that CMLL was mostly known for the trios. If they had a tag champion, usually the tag champs were two singles wrestlers that were thrown in or a couple of the trios guys. The, those Cowboys were an exception to that. And this is going back to their UWA days. They were tag team wrestling in UWA for a long time. Yeah. They would um, bring in. Los Canem Express, you know, Crawford and Furnace to come in and that lost their mass. They would bring in uh, Los Headhunters and have them feud. And that was a I love hell of a feud. Oh, those yeah. I love Headhunters versus Los Cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever saw Headhunters on uh, UWA TV. And that was the first time I saw them against uh, Silver King and Ticano. And I mean, they look like these two little Abdullah the Butcher lookalikes. And then lo and behold, one of them gets up on the top rope and does a moonsault. And I'm just like, holy fuck, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And those matches were amazing. The the matches with uh, Can-Ams were amazing. They would throw some of the Vianos in there against them or or just random people or whatever or put them in a trios matches against uh, Enrique Vera and guys like that. But what the Cowboys did was, I mean, they they really were tag team wrestling in Mexico in the 90s. And then uh, when um, Silver King went to WCW, it's like you didn't really see tag team wrestling that much until you had the later stuff with Ultimo Guerrero and Rodrigo yeah. Canero. So, yeah. I mean, the 90s tag teams was Los Cowboys. So if they ever make a um, Mexico or actually if they just have a tag team wrestling award or anything involving a Hall of Fame with tag team wrestling. And didn't um, now to come to think of it, Cowboys did a Clash of Champions appearance too, representing yeah. Mexico as the Silver Kings. Yeah. as No, they were those Cowboys. Weren't no, they were the Silver Kings. Oh, geez. God. Yeah. And then they have Bob Cook as like one of the headhunters or something because of some political like uh, they <laughs> It was like Bob Cook and somebody as little headhunters because they were going to go in the ring with New Japan. And I guess Wing had a problem with them uh, in the ring with them or something. But um, Los Cowboys are for if they ever do a tag team thing, Los Cowboys are our first ballot for me for sure. Well, and you just mentioned the other tag team, Ray Bucanero and Ultimo Guerrero. And Ultimo Guerrero just made the Hall of Fame. But, you know, that was an amazing tag team. And Ray Bucanero is kind of like in that whole. Um, you know, the role of another wrestler who was really good at one point, actually really, really good. And he's probably never going to get a stiff in that because he's not a, you know, he's, he doesn't have the qualifications as a singles wrestler, but as a tag team wrestler and trios wrestler with Ultimo Guerrero, I mean, that was an amazing run going back from what, 1999, all the way through about 2004, 2005. I mean, that's even longer than that, I think. Uh, Cause I think they broke up when Atlantis joined the group. So 
that that's another um, tag team that I think probably should be considered. Uh, I, and like I said, we don't know, like, it, you know, Ultimo Guerrero's already in. I think we're probably, I think we should probably just be happy one of them made it uh, at this point because we've been through about five, six years where there was no luchadors. Uh, that, 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 that ballot was really getting full. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of guys dropped off, like Blue Panther. I, I wish I would have been voting back when Blue Panther was um, was on the list and seeing cars just because I think I think Blue Panther is somebody that really deserves some consideration. And another guy that, you know, never gets mentioned. And, you know, I think most of us who watched him saw him already really old uh, was Anibal. But if you talk to a lot of the guys from the previous generation, like Nero Casas, Nero Navarro, all the older guys, Riley Jalisco, they all talk about Anibal like he was like the biggest star in the 70s. They talk about that guy like they are like nonstop talking about how he was like the big star for them at that point. And it's like he's not he's never I don't think anybody's ever gonna consider him as a Hall of Famer. And it's kind of unfortunate, like like we said earlier. I, th- I think someone like MASA Uno deserves to be on on his own. Most of the voters probably remember him from his uh, trios days. That's right. But oh my god, his stuff with Sangre Chicana. Yeah. Well Sangre Sangre Chicana's not I don't think he's been on the ballot at least. I, no, I think, no, he uh, was. Van Kirk Kurt... got him on the ballot, I believe. Yeah. And then he yeah. didn't get enough votes. I told him about him and then and then like and then later on, when he, he didn't, Kurt wasn't prepared to get me a, a, a ballot at that point in time. So. so if any of the listeners out there are, are voters for the Hall of Fame and you are into Lucha, we are asking you, do not vote for other categories. Vote only for Lucha. And put in <laughs> as many luchadors as possible to get in there, please. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, guys, let me ask you about some of the names that are added to next year's ballot. and. Get your thoughts on if it's someone you would vote for. The names added next year are Ole Anderson, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, Brian Pillman, Joe Higuchi, and Takaki Kidani. I think Ole Anderson um, might be somebody I'd consider. I'd, I'd go for Higuchi. Why? Yeah, Higuchi also. Oh, geez. Longe- longevity. Remember, uh, all Japan didn't have multiple referees. They only had one referee. Huguchi would referee all of the matches. But you so, know, Roy, but you know, Roy, the problem here is that now you're 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 opening up the this wormhole of um referees and then I'm <laughs> gonna start talking about all these Lucha Libre referees, although I don't think any I, I don't know if I would vote for anyone just because I get so angry at the Well like Grand Davies and uh, uh the original Tirantes and uh Pepe Casas and Yes. Uh, if there are ring announcers in the hall of fame it should be open to referees yeah and you know because there there are you know it's funny because now that we're, we we've gone through so much wrestling and we've seen a lot of bad officiating in, in, in matches where especially in lucha libre which if you've watched any lucha libre in 2019 trust me it's not just cml or triple a there is a lot of bad officiating in lucha libre uh, and it's a lot in CML and AAA. But, I mean, there have been some horrible calls. There's been some horrible stuff. So it kind of starts making you appreciate the guys who kind of were really good at what they did. Or, like, if they did a character, you kind of appreciate that they would know more or less when to tone it down. Like, Tirantes at certain points, although he kind of got carried away just because, you know, it was out of necessity just because, you know, AAA lost so much talent. And, you know, Pena started focusing so much of the promotion on on Tirantes being the, the heel rep. So... But I mean, I think he kind of belongs also. But you know, Higuchi, I think does. Like, if you're going to go with referees, I think he's probably the, somebody that should be in. 
No, that's absolutely. Let's get that wormhole open. If, <laughs> if Joe Higuchi is on that list, and I have no problem with it as much as he did for All Japan. I mean, I've yeah. heard Stan Hansen talk so fondly of Joe Higuchi and a lot of the boys so deeply. Then Wetterangale, Grand Davies, El Tirantes, and Pepe Casas. All four of those are probably the, you know, I think, I don't know if Fredo agrees, probably the top four referees in Mexico of the yeah. last, you know, whatever. They deserve to be in there as well. You, you know what's amazing is that uh, Pompin, one of the CML referees who's still active, I mean, if you go like, He's been active since 1963. Wow. I mean, that kind of like, I, I mean, it, you know, we, we joke about guys looking like the referees getting a little old. I mean, this guy's really like, this guy's kind of like crossing that line where it's like, but it's like, I, 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 you got to kind of admire that somebody's still doing that. But yeah, you know, I think, I do think like referees, because not only do they officiate, but a lot of them have a lot of other involvement behind the scenes, not just, not just, you know, booking or, you know, you know, like Tirante has promoted um, shows at AAA shows in, in Jalapa. So you have yes. other stuff they did. And not only that, they also kind of had to be the, the, the guy who had to explain to the, the foreigner what was going on in the match or, you know, tell the guys what they're going to do. So, yeah, I do think because they're part of the whole process of the match. So I do think it's I do think they're they're an important part and maybe they should be long um, in the Hall of Fame. You know, Weta Rangel in 96 at the Peace Festival, I talked to him for a little bit at the hotel, and he was telling me, like, it's so much more than just being a referee. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it has to do with, like, getting some of the boys ready to travel when they had to go, you know, to Guadalajara or other territories and stuff like that. They were the ones going to the hotel and checking it out first to make sure it was safe to stay there, uh, taking care of the hotel reservations when the office didn't have time to do it or couldn't do it and stuff. So, I mean, there's a lot of responsibilities away from the scenes that we don't see that the referees are involved in. I'm sure, you know, like what Tiger Hattori in New Japan, you know, as much as a referee as he was, anyone over the last 30 years that worked as a gaijin for New Japan will tell you the reason that they got in there was uh, Tiger Hattori looked at him. Like they like viewed them, saw their matches and then called them up and said, would you like to come, you know, try out with us? So that was a lot of, um, of, uh, responsibility. And I'm sure Tiger Tori isn't the only one. Let me close out with a, one last question, guys. If Kerry Von Erich gets dropped from the ballot next year and more than likely he will based on the results, the last couple of years and what percentage of the votes he got, we've talked a lot about trios and although they truly did not have a run as a six-man tag team like some of the guys we're talking about from Mexico. Do you think the Von Eriks as a unit, as Kerry, Kevin, and David, should be considered, or do you think they should not be considered? I would say yes. I think they do belong. I mean, you know, just because of what they, what they, I mean, for the state of Texas, they were so huge, but, you know, I do think they probably should get at least some consideration. I don't know if they're going to get in. I mean, honestly, Kerry Von Erich on his own should be in uh, somebody. He has enough of a of a what he's of achievements in his career where he he probably does deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. But you know, as a, as a as a unit, and you know, that's the other thing. I think a lot of people uh, didn't really get to see David Von Erich, uh, but the guy was fantastic. I mean, of all, it's unfortunate that he died at such a young age. Uh, so I I think you know if you watch and all this stuff is available on the WWE Network, a lot of the the early 80s 
uh, world class is amazing, and they're a very prominent part of it, obviously. So I think I think I would consider them. Yeah, me absolutely as well. I mean, if the, I mean, I'm the Freebirds worked multiple territories. I mean, they went to the WWF. They had that visibility and stuff like that, but. You know, that was all because of their feud with the with the Von Erichs. And I've seen some world class before the Freebirds Von Erichs feud really took off. And I mean, it was a hodgepodge of, you know, some of the stars in there and stuff like that. But you look at the crowds and the crowds were good, but yeah. they weren't like great. And once that feud started, it was just like a shot in the arm week after week. I mean, they hit lightning in a bottle with that feud and every everything about the six of them and getting Fritz involved and it, Brody involved in everything. It's just, they really hit lightning in a bottle there 100% because of what they were able to do. I have no doubt that the three Bon Eric boys, if they do a trios thing, uh, deserve to be in there. Boom. There it is. Part one of the wrestling observer newsletter hall of fame special for 2019. Download part two either right now or if you are listening right away as this has been released, come back tomorrow night for part two. More great discussions, more great historians, more ballots, so much. Check it out. But as we close things out, I want to remind you, you can follow the Super Podcast on Twitter at 605pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Great Brian Last and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at Super Podcasts. Also, the Super Podcast is on Facebook, facebook.com slash superpodcast. Big thanks to Travis Heckle for his amazing artwork. Big thanks to Lou Kippelman for all of his help in getting this week's show done. Also want to make mention that if you want to support this show, there are various links and ways to do it that are in the show description at 605pod.com or I guess wherever it is that you download the show. Of course, we have an Amazon referral link, tinyurl.com slash superpod. Amazon, there's Patreon, there's PayPal, there's various ways you could support the show. Hey, get a t-shirt! tinyurl.com slash superpodstore but until part two, which is either out right now or will be out tomorrow night, depending on when you listen to it, I want to remind you that the 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for all the fantastic guests here on part one. I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!